Welcome to episode 12 of the Mr. Barton Maths Podcast with me, Craig Barton. This episode, I spoke to Mark McCourt. Now, Mark has had an incredibly wide-ranging career in mathematics education, including time spent as a classroom teacher, advanced skills teacher, head of department, senior leader, head teacher, Ofsted inspector, director of the NCETM, founder of the Teacher Development Trust, creator of eMaths, and now CEO of La Salle Education, which, amongst many other things, gives us the wonderful maths comps. In a wide-ranging and some would say epic interview, we covered the following things. Why Mark really, really, really loves the number zero. We learn about the five key questions Mark asks himself when both planning and delivering a lesson. Mark shares his experience as an Ofsted inspector, talking about common traits of some of the successful and less successful lessons that he has seen. What is the impact of having a non-subject specialist inspector observe your lessons and how best to cope with this? What is Mark's view of the state of initial teacher training and CPD in this country and why might the subject associations hold the key to solving this? What books should every maths teacher read and why is there a notable omission from this list? And despite his name, why has Mark never actually marked a book in his life? That looked better on paper than it's actually come out in audio, but we'll keep it in there. Um, How do we cope with the problem of a fixed mindset in mathematics? And if I made Mark the Secretary of State for Education, what changes would he make to the curriculum, Ofsted, teacher training, SATs, GCSEs and A-levels? Mark is a man who is never afraid to share his views and you'll get plenty of these throughout the interview. I know I say this every time, but I genuinely think this is worth a listen, whatever your role or stage of career might be. And if you disagree with anything Mark says, and you probably will do, he loves an argument, so just send him a tweet. And there are links to everything we discuss, including Mark's Twitter address, on the podcast page. As ever, just a final plea that if you enjoy listening to these podcasts, please consider writing a brief review or giving us a rating on iTunes. Also, if you're looking for some non-mathematical audio entertainment, then you might just enjoy my Just The Job podcast, a podcast about the jobs other people do. I have interviews with a firefighter, brain surgeon and Graham Norton's wardrobe assistant, as well as many more. Just head over to justthejobpodcast.com to find out more. Anyway, time for me to shut up now as I introduce Mark McCourt. Thanks so, so much for listening, and I really hope you enjoy the show. And I will see you, as ever, on the other side. Okay, so let's start, as ever, with your three math speed dating questions. So question number one, Mark, what is your favourite number and why? Uh, favorite, I suppose most people would say seven, and I'm tempted to say seven, but um, uh, to be, this sounds really dull and boring, but my favourite number is actually zero, um, particularly as a teacher. It's not, it's not my favourite number. As a teacher, zero is my favourite number because... Um, it's one of those moments where maybe for the first time when you're working with kids, it's one of those moments where they really sort of 
get bamboozled and you know if you, you say to say to a child you're doing division even really early on and you're doing how many twos go into six and how many threes go into 12 and then you say to that child um how many zeros would make four and it's one of those first moments where they go huh <laughs> i really like those moments um and it makes me think of of, of calculus as well um you know the, the bit where you're trying to introduce calculus to begin with and you want them to maybe do something like something approaching the trapezium rule and they stumble across the area under a curve by stumbling upon the thought these bars have to be infinitely small and then you think but then you say to them well what width are these bars if they're infinitely small and they say they've got no width you go well what area have they got and they go huh (laughs) and I, i just really like those and you know that I think as well, um, year, year sort of five, year five, year six, doing Zeno's paradox with year five and six is just wonderful because they all know the story of the tortoise and the hare. Um, and if you, if you frame Zeno's paradox as tortoise and the hare, uh, and you say, you know, so this thing has to catch up half the way and then there's still a bit of distance. So it has to go half the way of that. And there's still a bit of distance has to go half the way of that. And eventually those kids go, oh, flipping heck, <laughs> this distance is so tiny. And they'll say, sir, sir, there's no distance left. And you say, well, there's got to be half of that distance, isn't there? Um, so, yeah, I'd go with zero. I also like how how many cultures, you know, zero has been around for a long time. Um, the concept of zero, you've got the, the Babylonians and uh, working with zero and you know, all the way through the sort of... Uh, Egyptian period and then through the Arabic period as well, people becoming more formal with it. But I like how many cultures just didn't bother to stumble across the idea of zero. Um, And and then, oh, I'm getting a bit carried away now. (laughs) No, it's going well. Keep going. Stop if you want to. Um, But also, I like working with teachers. Um, How many maths teachers don't know that um, a number, a digit, a numeral are not the same thing. It's quite an interesting question when you ask a group of teachers. You show them a, a symbol for a number. I did this at a, a, an event the other day, and uh, you ask them what it is, and everyone disagrees what the symbol is. And I like zero as a placeholder, you know, sitting there in in a, a placeholder and a number because it starts to reveal things about the base system that you're working on and place value and, you know, what does this mean, this zero sitting in here? And I like the fact that some historical history maths is a really big thing for me. I like the fact that some historical number systems just didn't bother, just left a gap. So you kind of have to work out, is there a zero there or not, just from context? Um, so all those really weird things about zero, linking it to infinity, uh, I, I'd say that gets my vote just for the sort of huh moments that it causes with with kids because I, I think math should be about lots of those moments where you go flipping heck what's this all about um and we don't get many of those moments to do that with really young children 
Um, and zero is one of those times when we do get to the overlap. So I'm voting for zero, mate. That's mine. I think you've got my vote there. You've, you've, <laughs> you've swayed, swayed me on that. Can I just ask you, because I've experienced something similar to that myself when, when kids first discover the kind of power and mystery of zero. What, what do you say to a child who, who asks you, say, for example, what, what, what four divided by zero is? Are you going for infinity, undefined? Do you have a, do you have a favorite response to that? I think if it's a young kid, and this gets, again, the reason I like it as a teacher is because it gets us thinking about what is division. Is division um, is division related to repeated addition, or is division uh, an, an anti-stretch? Uh, is division about putting things into um, spaces? You know, I, I, I want to take a, an amount of something and, and divide it up into different positions. And I like so if if the kids are really young, you say, you know, how many? What's four divided by zero? If you say it with really young kids, you say, okay, let's do four divided by one. So we'll, we'll count up in ones. They go one, add another one, two, add another one, three, add another one, four. So, and they can see it took me, uh, took me four of those to do that. And you can say with really, really young kids, you can say, what's zero at zero? And they go, well, it's nothing, sir. And then you just say, keep doing that until you get to four and I'll come back <laughs> when you're there. Uh, and really young kids will, will try and do it for a Then they'll say, I'm never going to get there, sir. And then you can relate it to infinity, this this idea of even if you kept going forever and ever and ever and ever, you would still never get there. Um, and if the kids are a bit older and you're looking at maybe asymptotes on graphs and things like that, uh, that, that sort of convincing a child that I know tangent has an asymptote and you can convince them because tangent is sine over cos and you know, the, the denominator is going to go to zero. And that there are those moments there where they get that those lines they're not because when you draw on a graph they think oh those lines will eventually hit something they'll eventually get to uh the axis or wherever the asymptote is they'll eventually get there they're thinking but when you start relating it to zero and division by zero and the stories you told them as young children they start to realize no no, no that line is never going to meet it's just going to keep on going so it depends how old the kid is and and, and how you want to address it i think um I just like winding children. (laughs) That's fantastic. I mean, we might have to change the definition of speed dating if if the second question takes us as long. No, no, this is superb. Um, My second question for you, Mark, is what what was your favourite topic in maths as a student? Um, I guess it's not really, you can't call it a topic, um, but I I love mathematical modelling. I love modelling situations out. I was a mathematical modeller before I was a teacher. Um, and still love that, love doing that. And as, as a child, I had a, my math teacher was a towering intellect, an incredibly bright man. He, you know, his, his room was full of books that he'd written and you know, it's a really admirable man. Um, and he more or less taught mathematics through mathematical modeling. Um, and I, I just fell in love with it. I remember doing, um, when we were doing, uh, uh, trigonometric graphs for the first time um, and he's looking at signs and uh, we wanted to do transformations of these graphs you know what happens if you've got sine x what happens if you've got sine x plus a what happens if you've got a sine x and so on um, and he just drew this thing on the board without talking about it he said what do you think this is guys well I don't know I don't know and then he put some times against it he said what do you think this is this is times of the day and we all said oh that's that's the that's the tide coming in throughout the day. 
And then we took Sinex and messed around with it until it perfectly fitted on that graph. And I remember thinking, wow, this is amazing. <laughs> and, and that modeling of situations, you know, whether it's things like Maxbox, which I, I love doing with kids of any age, um, you know, or, you know, how many, what's the biggest area you can enclose with a hundred meters of, of fencing and all that kind of stuff. I love that all the way up to, you know, doing the, the 3D Bernoulli equation is my favorite equation, um, and modeling flight, fluid dynamics. I love all that kind of stuff. And I know it's not a topic, you know, um, but, but I'd say that, that that's my, my favorite part of maths. Um, and, and yeah, I'm, I'm, when I, when I talk about modeling, I don't mean, um, because there's quite a lot of teachers I meet when I talk about modeling, they think I'm talking about problem solving. Yes. Um, and I don't mean problem solving. I often see teachers, uh, trying to do mathematics the wrong way round. Modeling is very much, you have to have the knowledge, you have to have the skills, you, know, you have to work bloody hard to understand all the stuff you need to understand so that you can then create a model. And I often see teachers thinking that problem solving is we will give children a problem and they will discover some mathematics from this, that, that the opposite way around to what I think problem solving uh, should be. Uh, you know, I think problem solving should be what I, I would consider as modeling, actually. So, so modeling I'll go for. Well, fantastic. And we're going to dig a lot more into into the essence of problem solving um, later on. That's superb, Mark. And well, my final question there is um, what job would you like to do if you weren't involved in education? Um, I think if I, yeah, if, yeah, if I, if I, this, I you make me sound like a colossal bore, Greg. <laughs> because if I wasn't involved in maths education, I think I would just go back to being a mathematician. Um, so I used to work for oil companies and I was doing things like large scale optimization problems, um, modeling out different situations, really varied stuff. Yes. Yeah, so one day you're modeling out a disaster on an oil rig and the next day you're designing a roundabout on the end of the M56. Um, and I think I go back to that. I, I am that sad and geeky. <laughs> You know, I, I still recreationally do that kind of stuff. I love going to the pub. Most of my friends, uh, you know, are, are not in education. Um, and many of them are mathematicians and I love going to the pub and talking about models. The stuff I do nowadays where we're writing, you know, if we're creating software or whatever, that is effectively creating mathematical models. Um, and we'll sit and talk about ontologies and things like that. The sort of thing that clears the table next to you. So no <laughs> near you. So I'd go back to that. I know it's not very interesting. Yeah, I should say a rock star or something. <laughs> I'm just a mathematician. No, that sounds no, that, that sounds absolutely superb. Well, you, you've kind of touched upon this this a little bit, but I wonder if you could just give the listeners a bit of a, a sense of your career to date, Mark. If you just take us through how it all started and how you got to where you are today. Oh, bloody hell. <laughs> um, so, I, yeah, so I'm in education and I... I I came into teaching entirely by accident. It was a complete mistake. Um, not mistake. Uh, you know what I mean? I didn't mean it to happen. Yes. Uh, so I read mathematics at college and I became, I was a mathematical modeler, um, for, at this time for Shell. Uh, and a chum of mine I was at college with 
uh, he'd become a teacher, which was just unheard of where I went, where I went to college, uh, you know, nobody became a teacher. He once said to me, you know, can you, can you come and talk to my A-level class about what real mathematicians do? Which I thought was really interesting because I, I thought, why are you not a real mathematician? You did the same degree as me. Um, so he said, come and talk to my kids about what real mathematicians do. This was a Sunday night in the pub in Chester. Um, he said, will you come and do this? And I said, well, no, I'm not going to come and do that. I'm, I'm a mathematician. I, I don't like human beings. And I've got no personality. Um, so, yeah, we, he maintains to this day uh, that we got drunk enough to the point where I said, yeah, of course, I'll come and see them. Uh, so then I felt I had to. I spoke to his kids. Uh, there were 17 children in the room. I remember it like it was yesterday. I, I was in a cold sweat driving there, terrified <laughs> to speak to people. Um I went and spoke to these guys for 40 minutes, 45 minutes I spoke to them, and I drove back to work that afternoon and resigned that afternoon. Flipping it. And the next day just asked around, how do you become a teacher? Um, so I, I did that and went off and did uh, teacher training. And can I just ask, Mark, what was it about, what happened in those 45 minutes that, that kind of changed your, your career forever? Well, it was, I tell you what we used to do at Shell a lot, I, I don't mean to speak bad of my old friends, there were five of us. Uh, on this mathematical modelling team, and we used to sit and moan a lot um, about where are all the mathematicians? Why are there no mathematicians coming through? Uh, you know, who's going to replace us when we die? That kind of thing. Um, and then I went and spoke to these kids, and for the first time ever, I realised why there were no mathematicians coming through. So I spoke to them about what we were doing at the time, we were, we, this model we were writing at the time, and they were just, they just thought this was amazing. And I thought to myself. Why do you guys, why do you guys think this is so amazing? Surely this is what you do at school because it's what I did at school. Um, and they didn't. And then the other thing that really got me was they were like these little questioning machines. You know, anyone that's got kids, you know, you, you know this. They just ask questions, 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 questions. And they're like little information sponges and they just want more and more and more and more. And when you're working as a mathematician with a group of other mathematicians, um, there isn't really that thirst for knowledge in that same way with adults. And adults are bogged down with rules and, you know, this is the way you're meant to be and this is the way in which you're meant to work, whereas kids are just mental and will just <laughs> want to explore everything. And I just, you know, I just completely fell in love with it. Um, and I wanted to be with those people and I wanted to be in a place where the kind of stuff we were doing at Shell, these young people would be able to do that. Because I thought they are so many questions, which is really what mathematics is about. There are so many questions. These guys will be really good at it, um, which proved right. You know, kids I've worked with over the years, they're much better uh, mathematical modelers than, than people give them credit for because they ask questions that adults wouldn't ask because adults get bogged down with, with the rules. So, yeah, it was just a, you know, an, an epiphany moment. Um, and that made me go off and, and train as a teacher. Uh, and training as a teacher nearly made me stop uh, <laughs> wanting to be a teacher. Um, I don't think I've ever had such a farcical experience um, before. You know, I'd come from industry where training meant what we'll do is we'll tell you some things and give you some skills that might help you do your job. And teacher training didn't seem to be about that at all um, when I did it. So, yeah, then I went and, you know, I was a maths teacher and 
various other roles in schools and, you know, head of math and then up into leadership, inspection. Um, and then when National Centre for Excellence Teach, uh, Teaching Mathematics started, I uh, got involved in that um, and worked there for a long time. My job was to, to operationalise that. I was a, a, a director at um, Tribal Group, uh, did various jobs you know here for the uk government and for other governments uh, internationally um and where, where are we at now so sort of 2011 uh came out of that retired um for eight months <laughs> went completely loopy with boredom um and then a couple of friends we had a, a discussion about what we we're up to, and we decided to start uh, um, a new business. And uh, you know, since then, been doing various odds and ends in, in, in business. Uh, I, I did a, a thing that we referred to as Beluga at the time, and now doing LaSalle Education, which is about creating a really large professional learning network of teachers. Um, you know, I think that the state of CPD in this country is is pretty woeful. Um, and the fragmentation that's happened with local authorities disappearing has left a lot of teachers isolated. So I wanted to take my time and my resources and, and see if I could do something about that. And that's where I'm at today. Fantastic. And we'll, we'll definitely dig into the work you're doing with LaSalle later in the interview. That, that's superb, Mark. And um, can we move on to one of my, one of my kind of favorite questions and favorite segments of the show is, is when I ask either current teachers or, or, or people who've taught in the past to choose a particular topic and it can be any topic you like, um, for, for any particular class, any age or ability, it doesn't matter. But if you can just talk us through the process of, of how you actually plan a lesson and, and put, put a lesson together, the kind of thought processes that are involved, the resources that you choose and then kind of take us through essentially an ideal lesson so if you can just talk us through the planning process through to the delivery process if that's okay mark okay um i really should have prepared for this <laughs> uh i was very lucky the very first school i went to um to work at after interviewing five head teachers i found one that i thought was was bright um and the head of maths there was really bright and his lesson planning pro forma was a blank sheet of A4 paper. <laughs> and his lesson observation pro forma was a blank sheet of A4 paper, um, which I, I found very helpful and, and has been really the way in which I've done it ever since. And this doesn't come from me. This comes from him, really. Um, when, I, when I plan a lesson, there will be however many stages there need to be, depending on the things I want to do. Uh, but I always ask for everything I'm about to do, every little stage, every snippet of the lesson, I always ask the same five questions. Um, that forms my plan. So I always ask myself, what are the students doing? Um, why are they doing it? What gains will they make because they are doing it? And then how will I know they're making gains? And then how will they know that they're making gains? And I found this a really helpful structure uh, all the way through my teaching career, that as long as you ask yourself those five questions for every little step that you're doing, you notice what's going on. And I think noticing is really important. Um, and I, I very early on in my planning, I used to have a really long commute 
to my first job. So I'd be driving several hours a day and I used to role play in my head the lessons and ask myself, so, okay, this is, this is what's going to go. And I'd imagine the lessons happening and role play it in my head and ask myself those questions. Uh, and I found that a really effective thing to do. Um, and what I often see when I, um, visit schools and spec schools, I often see the, only really the first thing being planned, which is what are the students doing? So teachers will very often say, you know, they're working on this activity and it's this resource and, um, you know, they've got 15 minutes to do this activity or whatever, but then don't ask themselves the other questions. I know lots and lots of teachers do, obviously, uh, but I think if you ask those five questions, you kind of nail it. So I've seen myself having, uh, you know, 12-part lessons, 18-part lessons, because there are there are chapters in my head that I'm playing out in my, my little video of the lesson. I remember once... Um, having a, a lesson plan written in the days when Ofsted, you know, would come into your room and pick up your lesson plan from your, your desk and you had to have a lesson plan. I remember having, I think it probably was an 18 part lesson written out. And, uh, the guy, the guy at the end of it told me it was a disgrace <laughs> and that all lessons should have three parts. Um, which was great because it meant immediately I knew he was an imbecile and <laughs> listen to his opinion. Um, so yeah, that's how I, that's how I go about every single lesson. It's always worked. And you know, that what I then do in the lesson. And, and this was really because I was surrounded by really bright people at the start by carefully selecting a bright head teacher. I made sure I was surrounded by bright people and. Even, you know, this is, this is a long time before things like, um, John Mason's 2002 book, uh, Discipline of Noticing. He, you know, so many years before that, people were talking about, um, you've got to be like a sort of alien anthropologist looking at yourself. You know, imagine, imagine you're floating above your lesson and watching yourself. What do you notice? What's happening? What's critical about going, or what's going on there? Um, and I, I've had, I've had the, Great pleasure of working with people like Gene McNiff over the year, years um, and looking at teacher inquiry or action research, whatever you want to call it, that whole thing of watching yourself, watching when you are consciously aware of how good you are and how bad you are and what things to change. Um, so that, that's how I, I tend to go about it. Um, it's always worked for me. I'm not saying anyone else should plan the way I plan. You know, it's... Uh, I think I think teaching is a very personal thing, and the way in which you go about it should be very personal. But that that idea of asking why always the time why are they doing this? Too much of what happens in classes uh, with children, there's no there's no answer to that. If you ask if you ask people why are they doing this, why are you doing this bit, there's no answer to it. And if you're inspecting a lesson and you ask why are you doing this, the answer is very very often because I thought you wanted me to. Yes. You know, so I think asking yourself why as a, as a grown up, intelligent, autonomous professional, if you're asking yourself why and the answer is there is no point to this, then don't do it. Um, <laughs> so yeah, that's worth for me. And can I pick up on the other, other, um, thing there as well as asking why you mentioned about knowing kind of what the students are getting out of it, if I, uh, to paraphrase you. How, I, I assume that that's kind of assessment for, for want of a better word. Can I assess, okay, can I ask you, how, how do you, how does assessment fit into your plan within the lesson itself? 
Yeah, so because I because you have those targets, you know, what are they doing? Why are they doing that? What games are they making? And then importantly, how do you know they are? Yes. And how do they know they are? But that that fourth one, how do you know they are? That forces you as a teacher to design really clever questions and really clever activities and spotting learning is incredibly difficult really really difficult it's why lesson observation is is frankly a farce you know inspection is a farce um and gene and i we we, we've taken cohorts of people through um you know year-long action research programs two years and sometimes after a year of really carefully studying yourself and studying what you're doing or two years of studying yourself and what you're doing after all that time, you can almost spot learning and what's going on. It really is that difficult and nuanced. Um, so it forces you to create activities that reveal whether or not something is being gripped, whether or not you have to react and implement some sort of corrective procedure. Um, yeah, I use the correct the word corrective very deliberately. I'm I'm an old sort of bloom and wash. Washburn fan and you know what what is popularly referred to nowadays as as mastery is is, is something that I've been up to for a, a long time. Um, so you know it's about of course practice is important and you will give questions for practice. But I think as educators, the real reason we ask children questions is to reveal something about those children so that we can then act. Um, and that that's kind of the language that I've been using for a long time. And I guess now. You know, that's fashionably referred to as formative assessment. Um, but, you know, it really is about spotting something and acting, doing something about it and doing something about it there and then, not waiting until the next lesson. And that makes it really hard, though, Craig, because it means that for every lesson you're going to plan, you have to have these really smart questions. <laughs> you know, so when you're starting out, how the hell can you do that? It's surely physically impossible and, I, you know, I, I really do mean that. And the only reason I could do that is because this guy I was telling you about, the, the first head of maths I had, they had spent decades preparing all of this stuff. And what I did as a, as a new teacher, new entrant to the profession, I came into this place where all of this stuff had been codified already and, and I was able to use it. Um, and that's kind of what we're, we do nowadays. We're trying to say why are thousands and thousands of maths teachers being asked to come up with these questions and prompts and activities when we've been teaching maths for thousands of years and we already know what they are. So, you know, I was very lucky that I found someone right at the start of my career who shared all that kind of stuff because, frankly, I think even though I love I love being a teacher and love working with students, frankly, I don't think I would have stayed in, in some of the schools that I've seen since um and probably would have went back to my old career and can i ask um cause you, you mentioned there the importance of, of questions and i'm i'm a firm believer of that I've, I've said for many years now i'd rather spend my time planning questions than building powerpoints or worksheets and, and so on do but is there a role in in your kind of ideal lessons for hands-on activities whether it be jigsaws card sorts mysteries or anything like that or is it is it very much kind of what if if you want to refer to it as essentially old school here's a question here's a line of inquiry now you you, you go off and do it well what kind of features are there and what what resources will be used in your lessons mark um <laughs> yeah i i guess i probably i oh god old school fine okay <laughs> call me that i'm quite old-fashioned quite traditional i went to uh, you know my own education was classical liberal very formal 
education. Um, so probably that rubs off for me. I see, I see, I saw my job as a teacher. Uh, you know, there is a there's a very well defined journey through mathematics. Uh, it's a very hierarchical subject. We know what we want them to achieve by the end of school. We know how long we've got to get them there. And I guess um, without trying to sound too autistic, I saw myself uh, in quite a scientific way of trying to move them step by step by step by step towards that end goal. So I try to deploy the most efficient and effective ways of doing that. Um, you know, and I've seen things that drive me mad. I, I've seen... I've inspected lessons, a primary lesson, I remember once where the teacher spent an hour trying to get children to discover what a square was. And you know, I was I was jabbing myself with my pen, <laughs> you know, just thinking, just tell them it's a square. <laughs> something interesting with it. Um, so, you know, I I'm, I'm probably am on that old-fashioned scale. However, having said that, um, I think if you ask my kids, you know, they're not kids anymore, they're all middle-aged people uh but if you if you ask people i taught i think their memory of it would be that there was quite a lot of hands-on and activity stuff because what i think my students remember certainly when i when i bump into them many of the teachers now bless them um when i bump into them they they say oh i remember when we built the trebuchet or something like that um but they don't particularly remember that what we did is spend a long time putting the underlying grammar skills knowledge in place so that we could perform some modeling so quite a lot of modeling in my lessons um and lots of that would have been physical um uh, lots of it would have been you know heck of a lot of geometry i'm a big fan of geometry um but i i think what you're asking me i guess is is there things like you know card sorts and tarsiers and uh you know that kind of thing um not very often but you know, sometimes, sometimes your maths lessons do have to have a bit of relief. Um, and this, this sounds terrible. I'll get, I'll get slated for this on Twitter, I'm sure. But, um, sometimes that relief is for you as a teacher. Uh, you know, sometimes you just have a, a bit of a, oh, I don't want to use the word fun. Um, but you know, a more relaxed exploratory lesson. I go off the curriculum all the time. I, I never really saw the point in the national curriculum. Um, you know, the school I went to as a child didn't have a national curriculum and I, I felt it worked out pretty okay for me. Um, so I go way beyond the national curriculum a lot and do activities, um, that are kind of, you know, come out of left field. Um, but yeah, I think, I don't know, 80, 80%, uh, kind of formal scientific almost you know i'm trying to dissect the lesson trying to dissect what will happen in the students minds as this is going on what's its purpose will it achieve a goal will it will it move them forwards you know and of course they move forwards and backwards learning maths is in no way linear but i, I had a very scientific approach to it of, of what i was trying to do i was trying to get them to a star um by the end of of, of schooling and you know was very determined to do that 
Um, you're in somewhat of a, of a unique position that, as well as well as being a teacher, you've spent a lot of time um, be, being an inspector. So you must have seen loads and loads of lessons. Um, I want to touch on the kind of process of inspection a little bit later on, but I wonder for now, could you just give us a little snapshot of of some of the best lessons, best maths lessons you've seen, or, or perhaps your favourite maths lessons that, that that you've seen during your time as an inspector? Um, I guess. The ones that really stick with me are are people that were being quite scientific about their approach as well. Um, but that's only because it resonates with me. I think what's important is that I've seen, because I've seen so many lessons, it's, the, it's just the biggest privilege to go around schools and watch people teaching. And I think what's important is that I've seen many, many lessons where the teacher had a completely different pedagogy to me and a completely different approach to their lesson, but they were highly impactful um, and and did close that gap in in in, in the student's knowledge and took them forward. Um, I remember a guy. Um, I won't I won't name him for uh, just case I embarrass him. Uh, I remember a guy who who would do this um, TV interviewing thing where he'd put children inside huge cardboard boxes and turn them into interviewers, which to me, you know, is quite a sort of boring old fart. I'd be thinking, <laughs> heck, what are you doing? Um, but he was doing it for a really important reason. Uh, and he was doing it because he was tapping into something in those children that said, you're now in a formal setting. This is important. The thing that you're doing is important. You've got to concentrate. You've got to think very carefully. The words that you say are important. And it worked really, really well. Um, and we, we filmed some of that for the NCETM. I thought it was that good that we went back and, and filmed some of it and put it out as um, exemplar material in some of our schemes that we built. I remember a guy, um, you know, you've probably done this. We've all, we've all done this activity. How far can you get with a tenor? Yes. Um, and I remember you know, I was sitting in a le- uh, an inspection lesson and I thought, he's going for the how far can you get with a tenor lesson, which we've all taught. But you never see people do it in an inspection lesson. People people close themselves down and do quite formal, rigid lessons where they think, you know, I've got to be in control, I've got to be in control. And this guy had no plan whatsoever. He just knew that whenever he does this lesson, he gets something out of it. And he's, you know, how far can you go for a tenor? And there was this little kid, little scruffy kid, um, bit bonkers, and he put his hand up 40 minutes into the lesson saying, you know, so I've got to Australia. All the <laughs> other kids were laughing at him saying, you know, how did you do that and all this kind of stuff. And he said, I bought a bike and did a paper round. <laughs> bought a ticket. I just thought, you know, good on you. you know, this is this is a child who was not able uh, in many of those lessons to stand up and be the biggest kid in the room. Um, and I think, yeah, that was that was an important thing for him to do that. And under, he understood that the open ended nature of that task would allow those kids to do that. Um, and I you know, see loads and loads of lessons like this where they're completely opposing approaches and opposing pedagogies, which is why the whole, you know, the whole lesson planning pro forma is is insane. And trying to tie someone into your own pedagogy is, is the biggest mistake you could possibly make as a head teacher. Um, so yeah, they're, they're ones that stick with me that I remember. Um, and I, again, I've seen people like me who are very scientific. They are dissecting the curriculum. They're building up a bank of questions. They know precisely what it is they're doing bit by bit. Um, yeah, it's very varied. It's a, a nice thing to be able to do to go out and watch. 
watch lessons oh absolutely as you say i think privilege is is the exact word it's a word to sum it up and and if we've got some someone listening here mark who's perhaps Ofsted are just coming round the corner whether it be the end of this academic year or the start of the next as a, a an Ofsted inspector yourself can can you offer some reassurance there that it it is perfectly fine to kind of think outside the box and do those kind of lessons that that you've talked about um whether it be how far can you get on a tenor or or you know lessons that engage and are, are slightly risky lessons as opposed to to playing it safe is it is it like a, a strategy that you'd advise if, if teachers are listening who are, are in that position? I think yeah, the really important thing is that you, you're you a grown-up and you're very well educated and you're a professional, uh, you know, and so is the person who's coming to watch you. And the reason you're in public service and the reason you work in schools is because you want to achieve something good for these kids. And so is the person who's coming to watch you. Uh, you know, the, the idea that inspectors are somehow different to you, I think, is very damaging. Um, you know, and I've done the how far do you get on a tenor lesson. So if I walk into your lesson, why would I expect you not to do that? Um, if you if you're planning, this is this is the right thing to do with these kids at this moment. This is exactly what they should be doing. I think that's the really crucial thing that you have thought about the journey they're on where this lesson falls into it. You know, I don't want you to, and, I, and I, I'm sure this is all a myth as well, because I have never met an inspector who does want you to behave like a, a sort of performing puppet when they're there. Um, you know, everyone I speak to in the inspection service says the same, that they want you to do the right thing at that time based on what you know about those students, where you're at, where the plan should be. You should never jump off the journey that you're on because, you know, just coming back to that scientific thing, it, it is a journey and th- those steps are in a very, very controlled, specific order. Getting those steps right, writing a curriculum is really difficult. And, and if you've done that, you've gone to that effort and written, this is the journey they should go on because that gets them to success in the end, then the worst possible thing you can do is, is jump off it because another adult is in your room. It's just perverse. Um, yeah, and having said that, you know, if you do uh, the how far can you get on a tenor lesson and it's crap, then you need to be big enough for someone to say, that was crap, you shouldn't have done that. And just because, you know, lots of people have done a lesson before and it works out doesn't mean it will. Um, I, I, one of my uh, strongest memories of, of inspecting, observing, whatever you want to call it, I remember watching a lesson. It was a total car crash. It was just awful. And the kids, the, the kids would have been better not being there. The teacher would have been better not being there. And I said to the teacher at the end, you know, well, what was that all about? And the teacher said to me, well, it's an outstanding lesson, isn't it? And I was like, <laughs> so, no, it wasn't. And she said, well, you've only got yourself to blame because you wrote it. And it was a, yeah, it was a lesson she downloaded from Emats. And um, just felt that because because someone had written it and put it up on a site, that you can just switch it on and not take any responsibility for it being high quality, for it being the right thing to do and so on. Um, you know, so I think we're, aren't we grown up as a profession? Can't we just say, you know, sometimes I have a car crash and sometimes I don't. But generally, what I'm trying to do for a living is good. You know, I'm, I'm not trying to damage children. <laughs> we all have car crashes and, you know, we should be big enough to 
admit that. And, you know, uh, equally, we should be professionals. And if if the teacher in your room, uh, sorry, the inspector in your room has no idea what they're talking about, tell them as well. You know, it's um, first, I think you know this, Craig, the first lesson I ever uh, inspected was year eight trampolining. (laughs) I don't bloody know what's going on in year eight trampolining. Um, but at the end of that lesson, the teacher's saying to me, oh, how well did I do? <laughs> I don't know. They jumped up and down, mate. But I, I don't know if those jumps were good or not. And why did that Why did that teacher not have the confidence to say to me, uh, you're a nice guy, but you can get the hell out of my room because you don't know what you're talking about. I wish you had. That's the right thing to do. But, you know, in a professional way, obviously. Um, but, you know, why, why have we lost our oomph and our confidence as teachers? Uh, there's five and a half thousand maths teachers missing at the moment. No one's going to sack you. Uh, <laughs> well, that that leads me. I, I want to pick up on two things from that, Mark. I'm definitely going to dig in in a couple of minutes to to why lessons go wrong. Uh, I find that an absolutely fascinating area. But, but just a quick one, just on something you've mentioned there. Um, th- this whole concept of non-specialist inspectors. I mean, we went through an Ofsted inspection at our school just a few months ago, and we had um, two linguists um, in, who um, one who observed my lesson and so on. And I just wondered if, if you could, I don't know whether the way to phrase this is, is give some advice to, to maths teachers being observed by non, non-specialists, or whether there's, there's a different take on it. But but the, the chances are you're not going to be watched by a mathematician and the, the, way, the way inspections are set up these days. So should should maths teachers approach it any differently? Should they make it explicit, the kind of subtleties of the things that they're trying to do that a non-specialist might not pick up on? And should they do that in the lesson plan? Because as you say, with, with the trampolining, um, and when I go and watch you know, French lessons or, or English lessons or history lessons, I can pick up on certain things, but it's those subtleties that I can't pick up on. And I'm often concerned that non-specialists will miss those subtleties um, when they watch a maths lesson. So I just wondered if you could just tell us your take on that. Yeah, I think, you know, uh, part of it, I, I'm, I'm, I'm maybe making light of things. Uh, what, what, what I firmly believe in is that we're all professionals and, you know, there are hundreds of thousands of, of people working in education. You almost never meet someone working in education who isn't in it for the same reason that you are. Uh, and it doesn't matter what they teach. And you, you have a non-specialist in your room and they're going to watch you teach. That's their job. They're an inspector. Um, and they're there to perform a task. You can, of course, be completely professional with them. There are things that they'll be able to spot. There are, there are important aspects about the lesson, about the schooling of that child, about what's going on in terms of behavior, interactions, all that kind of stuff that they're able to spot and have a professional discussion with you about. But spotting learning is really hard. And, you know, I, I've sat in many, many lessons that are not mathematics. And I hand on heart have to say, I don't know if those kids were learning what they were supposed to be learning or not. How could I possibly know? And the only person in the room that does know that is the teacher. So what I do, and I've just sort of flipped this on its head, Craig, what I do as that non-specialist in the room rather than the teacher is I go to that teacher and say, you know, characteristics of the class and whatever and what's going on. And then I ask them. Did this, did, did those children learn the things that you wanted them to learn? And they'll say yes or no. And I'll say, how do you know? Um, rather than trying to make a judgment on those things that, are, and yeah, things are not as bad as they used to be. The, the days of walking around with these little ready reckoners where you could, you could open it on any subject in any class. You know, you could literally turn to 
I'm sitting in a French lesson and they're 12 years old, so I turn to that page and it says the children should be learning this stuff. Yes. You know, that that's long since gone. I think that uh, Ofsted have gone through a really important process in recent years. Um, I think we're in a much better place with Ofsted than we were um, for quite a long time. Um, but, you know, I think the onus is on you as a teacher and a professional you own that classroom, you own what's going on, you're responsible for those children, you're not a performing uh, monkey, you, you, you know, you do what's right for them on that day. But of course, you know, this is another human being, adult, in your room, you, you, you treat them with the respect you treat any other human being um, and, and have a proper grown-up discussion with them. And you know, if there was ever a situation where that can't happen because of whatever it is, then, you know, remove yourself from it and, and move on and don't worry about it. Um, but I, I think the important thing is to do what's right on that day with those children and whether or not that inspector stumbles upon the right things or not. And yeah, that's not up to you. That's that's just the way the system works. Do everything you can to explain it to them. Do everything you can to behave you know, cordially and respectfully with them. And I'm sure they'll do exactly the same with you. I think, I think you're right, and I think if I could just offer a, a tiny bit of advice, whether whether people think this is useful or not, we there's the whole thing that was going around now. You don't have to have a lesson plan for Ofsted and all this. They don't expect to see a lesson plan. My response to that is the the lesson plan for me is 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 there obviously like I I know how I'm going to do the lesson in my head. It, that's not what the lesson plan is there in an Ofsted context. It's there to allow me to kind of communicate to essentially a non-specialist what I'm doing and why I'm trying to do it and you know how I'm going to judge how successful I've been and, and I have on my lesson plans a little section called the big picture where I just give a little sentence overview about of the class a couple of sentences of what I'm trying to achieve this lesson and a couple of sentences that say this is how you can judge whether this has been successful or not and I think it just allows the non-specialist to have a bit of an insight into what you're trying to do and kind of opens up that conversation so that that would be kind of my way way of dealing with that and I'm not doing anything wrong there Mark am I I'm not set no alarm bells going off in your head there no you're you're treating that other adult respectfully you know you're saying I recognize you're in a situation as well and you know I want to communicate with you so that we both have a better hour together um the only thing I'd say is that uh, that's great that you do that Craig and it works for you the only thing I say is there is no model you know everyone should do what works for them yes um you know and, and as long as people are doing the right thing by their children and behaving professionally with each other. And you know, I don't see there should be any issue, really. Fantastic. Well, I'd, I'd like to move now to kind of flip it on its head. And I want I want to talk about lessons that, that go wrong, because, again, this is one of the most popular features of the podcast. Now, you can either, it's up to you, Mark, how you take this. You can either think back to, to your own teaching career, if there's a particular lesson that sticks in your head that was, as you d described before, a bit of a car crash or a bit of a nightmare, or pick out a couple of lessons like the one that you described uh, that you mentioned before that, that went wrong that was the so-called outstanding lesson and I want to dig into in your experience what is it that makes lessons go wrong what mistakes do teachers make and, and what can we learn from that um, well the yeah a lesson goes wrong if you didn't close again if you didn't take them somewhere um, I wouldn't say a lesson goes wrong if you don't if it doesn't go according to plan you know, many, many, many of my lessons didn't go according to plan, but went quite well uh, because my kids were little buggers and would send me off on tangents all the time. 
Um, lessons that went wrong for me, Craig, will be no surprise to you. Pretty much every statistics lesson I ever taught, uh, you know, because I have that bias inside myself where I don't like it. And I did my best. Um, I remember teaching, I think it was year 10, a long, long time ago. I had year 10 and, uh, a kid said to me, what's, uh, what's a mutually exclusive event? And for, I've got no reason why this happened to me, but for some reason, even though both of those words tell you exactly what, what it means, for some reason, I had no idea and just thought, oh, bugger, what does that mean? I haven't got a clue. And then they saw this sort of uh, panic on my face and, uh, you know, used that opportunity to uh, divert the lesson. So that was a bit of a car crash, that one. Um, I think really that the where lessons go wrong is is almost always down to failing to plan it properly um, you know, and think about it and think about where you are on the journey, what part of the curriculum you're addressing, how you're effectively going to work out what's going on, what are the right questions to ask, why ask those questions, what are they achieving. Um, you know, for me, that's, that's where it's kind of always been. I've been really lucky in that, you know, apart from one very short period, I didn't really have any behavior issues and things like that. Um, so it was always that kind of, I, I beat myself up a lot if, you know, if I hadn't achieved what I wanted to achieve a very, in that very scientific way again. Um, and when, when I see lessons go wrong with teachers, um, other teachers and colleagues, I think the most common thing that happens, and I, and I think this is also part of the effect of being observed. I, I think being observed changes. Uh, what's going on. Um, you know, it's like a sort of Heisenberg type thing. Uh, and when I watch teachers and they go wrong, it's often because they had a plan and some tiny, tiny event happens. And then they feel, but I've got a plan and I have to stick yes. to that plan. Instead of saying, no, no, I've got decades of experience and knowledge and skill. And what I'm going to do is take this now in the new direction it needs to go. Um, and, you know, when we are all training to be teachers and we don't have that repertoire of things to fall back on, I think that's why the first couple of years you can beat yourself up so much driving to and from work because you've had these terrible lessons because you didn't have that ability to react and change what you're doing, um, which is why, uh, is why I always think that someone who's been teaching 20, 30, 40 years um, almost behaves in an entirely different way. They behave like an expert. You know, they don't have to give so much attention to certain things because they've got that to fall back on. Uh, I think that's the main the main cause of, of lessons going really wrong is being afraid to alter what you what you had planned and going with what's right at the time. Um, you know, and I, I used to do used to have. Um, a whole bunch of questions for, for lessons. And one thing I love doing, kids really loved it as well, is you go in with a question and you'd say, at the end of the lesson, you know, this is the sort of thing we'll be able to do, I'll be able to address this, give it a shot now. And they give it a shot and they'd be able to do it all. And then you'd say, great, we can start the lesson. And the kid, the kids really, you know, hook onto that and think, wow, this is, this is something clever happening here, you know. He's not going to waste our time. He's going to take us to another point. Um, but the amount of times I've sat in lessons, and you nudge a kid that you're sitting next to and saying, you know, tell me about this. And they say, I can already do this, sir. You know, the amount of times you sit in a year seven lesson 
and they say, we did this in year five. Yes. And they're just sitting there going through the motions again. That not knowing what the pre, um, the prior attainment of the children is, where they should be, where to springboard them from, what's the correct starting point. You know, that's, that's when you get into real trouble then if you, if you are starting in the wrong position with a child, whether it's too easy or too hard actually, you've got to get it just. Yeah, I, th- I think you're right, Mark. And if I can just, just pick up uh, again just a little bit on that, because I, I think this is a particular issue for, for years. Year seven is probably the, the the, the kind of the place I see this most and that's because there's a lack of knowledge on the secondary teachers part of exactly what's happened at primary school and also and this happens not just at year seven this will happen throughout school when a teacher perhaps inherits a class that they haven't they haven't taught before it's all well and good knowing what the student should know but it's uh, it's a completely different thing what what they actually do know so in in that in that situation and again, it's a classic question, but I'm just interested in your take. What are you doing there in that year seven lesson where you've you've assumed that kids perhaps don't know something and then all of a sudden you find out that half of them are completely comfortable with that material, but half of them, perhaps they've gone to a different primary school, perhaps they've had a different learning experience or whatever, half of them are not comfortable with, with the material for, for that lesson. What, 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 do you, what do you expect to see um, from, from the teacher in that instance? I think one of the things that we're... As math teachers, very, very lucky in that we, well, we've got the best subject, let's face it. Um, we're very lucky because everything that we're teaching in school level mathematics, and there aren't really that many things in the, the, the whole time that children are at school, but every single one of those concepts that we're addressing is infinite. Um, so, you know, if I'm, if I'm teaching a lesson and a bunch of them can't do a certain part of that concept, then I'll instruct them and I'll teach them and I'll get them to a point that I need them to be. But it doesn't mean the other kids can't be doing something on that concept as well, because every single bit of it is infinite. And you, you know, you often see uh, teachers they'll say, "Well, this, you know, this this child here, they can um, this child can add two digit numbers, and this child can't add two digit numbers. How on earth am I supposed to cope with a class like this?" And I say, well, the, the kids you say can add two-digit numbers, are you sure? And they say, yeah, yeah, they can add. Look, here they're doing some addition. I'll say, well, can they do it in base seven? <laughs> and then suddenly the teacher thinks, oh. And you can see that moment where the teacher thinks, I don't think I can bloody do it in base seven. <laughs> uh, you know, so what, why, why should it be that we're supposed to say that's that topic done? Yeah. Um, and in this, this current craze of... Um, you know, having here are your mastery indicators for a question. We can do this. That's that one finished. It's just I want to hit people that that, <laughs> that you know people people that think you know I I can I can count or I can work with decimals or I can add or I can divide or you know I can work with this type of geometry or whatever it is. And you think well no you can't actually because you know every bit of that is infinite and every bit of it can be expanded. If you take the three hundred or so the three hundred and twenty concepts in school level maths there isn't one of them right the way down to counting there isn't one of them that you couldn't extend that would be uh, to, to make it suitable for undergraduates you know one of the things that undergraduates will meet in their first year i guess when they're doing um number theory lessons will be things like the pigeonhole principle they'll be learning about the principles of counting the axioms there so you know this this is something that year ones are also working on yes it's the same concept and you can ex- expand it as far as you want to. Yeah, you know, that's that's why I get a bit um, confused at this uh, discussion that's going on at the moment about 
uh, you know, you can't differentiate. Um, I just think it's the most bizarre thing to say because every concept in mathematics is infinitely differentiable. You know, let's celebrate that. We're not, we're not historians or, you know, geographers. We've got a lot of subjects that do anything to me. I think you're right, and again, I, it's a point I'm incredibly passionate about this. And again, listeners will have to forgive me because they've heard me bang on about this this tons of times. But like, I, I whenever I watch lessons, it was probably about two years ago. Um, I watched the science teacher teach a lesson, and and his idea of differentiation was he had 11 different worksheets out, and he spent the entire lesson. Everyone started on worksheet one, and then when you're done worksheet one, you're on to worksheet two, and then worksheet three, and so on. And within four minutes, his role in the class was. Pure purely to dish out worksheets and it was an absolute disaster because kids didn't know whether they were getting things right or wrong one kid was on like the kid who was still on worksheet one but whose mate was on worksheet seven felt absolutely crap about himself and at the end of the lesson he couldn't bring it all together because everyone had been doing completely different work and for me that was a bit of an epiphany and you you mentioned earlier on Mark about the the importance of questions and I'm all in favour of of planning questions and just to take your example there about the addition I mean if for if you're doing a lesson on double digit addition or whatever and you use the example of of, of us challenging the, the kid who's mastered it to, to try it in base seven but even even simple things like how many different additions how many different two double digit additions will give you the answer of 88 and how do you know you've got them all just something like that that gets them consolidated but also just has that little line of inquiry and, and just gets that extra depth and then at the end of the lesson you can still bring it back because everybody's still been working on double digit addition but everybody's been doing it at different levels and for me that that's effective differentiation and it's yeah that 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 kind of does it for me. Uh, yeah. Do you mind if I argue with you? Is that Yo, okay? please, let's go, uh, <laughs> go for it. I'll probably cut it out. Because I think that what you're describing there of, you know, so you've got some kids that are doing double-digit addition and you say, how many ways are there to doing this? So you're getting very deliberate practice there. You're, you're making them uh, make the task infinite. Yeah. So they, they're getting practice and that's good and they're, they're getting more and more familiarity. Um, but, Aren't you then losing an opportunity? And I think that one of the, one of the real issues we have at the moment of what's coming out of the DFE is we're losing an opportunity to extend and 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 give people, you know, opportunities to see the light in mathematics. So the, the reason I would say, um, so you've got some kids working on audition, and then I'd spot a kid. I'd ask them a question, ask them a few questions. I'd spot a kid who's gripped this, can understand what's happening in the place values and the placeholders in, in this double-digit edition and change the base. The reason I'm doing that is because it's making a, it's making a step there, a conceptual leap there, where they're having to think about what these place values are and what these numerals are and what they're doing by multiplying by bases. So at the end of that lesson, what I'd ask, the question I'd ask wouldn't be, uh, can you do this question and put another double digit addition up? The question I would ask, and I'd ask it of everyone of all the, all the different abilities, I'd say, what's addition? What's happening in addition? And I'd want the children to be talking about the relationship between the numerals and the base position that they're sitting in. I'd want them to understand that if these numerals are moved to the left or to the right, they're fundamentally changing because they're multiplying by these, these, um, these, these bases that they're sitting in. So sometimes I think that um, practice is, is, is all well and good. Um, but I think if you're in a room with children, because we are experts and we know what we're trying to do with them conceptually, I think if you're there with them 
we can be more risky than that and we can stretch them more than that by by changing the characteristics of the of the concept by literally taking it on a step so I, I think I think that changing the base is, is a good way to go. It works even better in subtraction as well, and particularly subtraction when you're getting into borrowing and what's happening there. You know, when you when you're doing a, a, a subtraction in base eight and you have to borrow from the left, and you're thinking, <laughs> what is the number that comes from there to this column? You really have to think about what is subtraction, what is this process that's going on, um, and I want children to be into that deeper thinking of understanding the structure, the mathematical structure of what's going on, uh, more more than I want them to be doing the, the deliberate practice. I guess if I was to, to argue back slightly, um, that I think the I, I, for me there'd be kind of three stages of this. You, the, the kids would start off doing the doing the, the double digit addition and then we'd establish very quickly which kids are comfortable and which kids aren't. I think I'd like that intermediate step in there I'd, I'd like if i had the child who was relatively comfortable with adding it i don't just want them doing 100 examples of it I, I, I still want them to have practice but i want them just to to do it in a slightly different context just to you know develop sl- certain other skills along the way so if i said to them again just top of my head how many different sums can you make the double digit sums that that um, add up to 88 and maybe I put a constraint in there maybe something like the sum of the four digits must be a prime number or something something like that mm. what I'm what I'm what I'm t- tapping into there I'm still getting that deliberate practice but I'm also tapping into things like systematic listing strategies or generalization or something like that and then if I've got if I've got the child who's, who's making progress with that and I'm happy with that then maybe I then bring in your excellent suggestion of, of the base numbers but I just again it will be different for different children but I don't want the judge to be too big straight away for, for all children, if, if that makes sense. Sure, yeah. And I think um, Itiel Draw, uh, I think he's still at Southampton University, He his phrase is, is, is perfect where he talks about just right challenge. Yes. The reason you're thinking that and the reason I, you know, the reason we, we're, we're in our head role playing some lessons here, yes. thinking about children, and we can do that because we're experts at what we do and we're imagining what's going on here. And it's our art to get that challenge just perfect. Make something too hard, it's completely waste, wasted. You know, it's a total waste of time. Make it too easy, it's a total waste of time. So we're always trying to create this just right challenge so that they go over that cusp. Um, and it's going over that cusp where learning starts to happen and, and gets embedded. Um, you know, that comes back to your non-specialist watching you again earlier on. You know, a non-specialist watching, would they would they spot the difference between my child sitting working in base 10 and my child sitting working in base seven or 11 or whatever it is would they spot the difference do they know why that's happening and so on and you know it takes a long time to build that expertise and that's what that's what the teacher training should be about (laughs) people know these things absolutely and again just just to put the final point on this i think it also comes back to, to what we were talking about earlier that i'd much rather have seven or eight prompts or or lines of inquiry or whatever you want to call them whatever we're calling this change the base or 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 get 88 in as many ways possible i'd rather have seven or eight of them up my sleeve any day of the week than seven or eight different powerpoints or seven or eight different worksheets because i can be flexible with that if i if i give the child my idea of how many ways can you get 88 and then within two or three minutes i can see they're getting a bit switched off i just go over to them and say right i'm going to change the base on you now and you can be much more flexible if you've planned 
questions and prompts and lines of inquiry as opposed to be fixed in a rigid lesson that's that you're just going to go through the motions no matter what happens to the kids so yeah that's that was kind of my big insight in in teaching is plan questions and prompts ahead of planning resources i think yeah totally agree absolutely Fantastic. Well, if I can turn our attention now, and you, you've kind of hinted about this earlier on, Mark, about about CPD, and I know this is something you feel very passionate about. So I wonder if you could just give the listeners a bit of an overview of, of what you see the current state of, of maths teacher CPD is in the country and how it's changed over the years that you've been involved in education. And then we can start to talk about some of the different courses that, that, that you, you run yourself. Um, well, you know, I don't think it's any secret that the, the state of CPD in this country is not good. Um, it isn't particularly good in, in any of the Northwestern cultures, really, and there are all sorts of political and economic reasons for that. Um, you know, but if I come back to it being a, a, a journey through your career, um, this, you know, the, the fact that you get off to such a bad starting point is, is probably the biggest hindrance. You know, if there are only 320 things that we're going to ask kids to learn, and that's all the kids in all of our schools, why is it we're not saying to every teacher, you need to be totally skilled in all of these 320 things and you need to have six or seven different um, questions and approaches that you can deploy when these things come up. And when you do that, we'll give you a license and you can become a teacher. Um, you know, the, the, the subject-specific input in ITE is woeful. Um it's not as woeful in mathematics as it is in, in many other subjects, uh, but it is still very, very poor. And we, you know, we, we have programs now that throw effectively recent graduates into classrooms and just say, get on with it. Uh, you know, why, why do we expect that to be a successful model? It just doesn't make sense to me. Um, and yeah, you know, over, over the years, I think the biggest thing that, that has happened that's changed really has been this fragmentation of the landscape. Um, you know, there were what 152 local authorities. There are now over two and a half thousand multi-academy trusts. Um, and in those local authorities, and don't get me wrong, local authorities were stark raving mad um, and had all <laughs> a lot of faults. But what you did have in those local authorities were dedicated people where their job was to support schools and to support subject-specific knowledge. And some of them worked really well and some of them didn't work well. I get all that. But I think that having people that were dedicated and spent all of their time thinking about, uh, in our case, mathematics, pedagogy, mathematics, subject knowledge, creating mathematics networks, bringing mathematics teachers together, uh, looking at trends in their authorities and what was going on, and that was all they did and thought about that. And they saw themselves as critical friends of schools. I think that there were a lot of those people who were extremely talented, extremely knowledgeable, you know, sort of 400 or so people that have been divested since 2010 you know, and scattered into the system now. And we've lost an enormous amount of knowledge um, since 2010. And we have... Uh, some multi-academy trusts where, particularly the larger ones, they've been able to pick up that mantle and have that same sort of relationship and same sort of expertise, but only the larger ones and only the lucky ones, um, whereas the majority of trusts don't have someone of that expertise sitting in there. Um, anyway, and this expertise takes a very long time to acquire. Uh, that kind of knowledge takes a very long time to acquire. You can't do it 
uh, in a couple of years of working in a school and then become the director of mathematics in a chain. It's not a criticism of people. You literally just can't do that um, because you don't have time to acquire the experiences and the interactions and the observations and uh, the knowledge that you need to do in that time. So I think the, the, the fragmentation is a huge, huge problem, remains a huge problem. I hope that what happens is that there will be a coalescence of, of um, academy trusts if we're going to stay with an academy system. Um, that, that kind of knowledge base starts to re-emerge somehow. But that will take individuals in, in academy trusts to make that happen. It will take schools to want to invest in that and to see themselves as the economic buyers of that, that, that support and, and force it through. I think the other thing that um, is kind of bizarre about uh, England um, is that we have an enormous knowledge base. I'm only going to pick two, even though there are, I know there are a multitude of subject associations. But if I just pick the Mathematical Association and the Association of Teacher of Mathematics, the ATM and the MA, all of the answers are there. If you look at the people that make up those two clubs, everything you could possibly need to know about a mathematics education system already exists in those people. Yet their voice has been, um, I would say, I would say their voice has been systematically quashed over the years. Uh, and part of that is, is the fault of us as teachers, you know, teachers not engaging with their subject associations. And if you're listening, and you're not a member of a subject association, stop listening because you'll learn more from them than me and Craig. So just <laughs> join, uh, join it now. Uh, so, you know, part of it's our fault. Part of it is the subject association's fault of not being able to, you know, react quickly. Though I, I see both MA and ATM um, taking really good steps this last year in particular. Um, but a lot of it is, is you know, the, the, the sort of, system uh, leadership that we've had has not been good in mathematics. Um, and, you know, we haven't really tapped into the knowledge that, that sits inside there. There is often a belief uh, that the subject associations are these sort of, you know, elbow patched, uh, sort of older, retired enthusiasts and, you know, which you know, and progressives and you know all that kind of stuff will come up a lot, whereas actually what you have there is is a knowledge base that would would you know be competitive in any international arena. Uh, the, the the people we have in this country are just this phenomenal knowledge about maths education. Um, so I think that what we don't have here is a systematic way of ensuring that every single maths teacher is involved in. Uh, professional development and continued professional development, not just math teachers, but you know, that's obviously what we're talking about here. You know, why is it not the case that math teachers um, are, why are they not expected to continue to learn? Why are they not expected to continue to um, study? Why are they not expected to be a part of a professional body and um, make sure that their, their knowledge is increasing year on year on year on year? None of us go into teaching knowing all of the stuff that you're supposed to know in teaching, none of us. Um, you know, so why are we so shy about saying there needs to be a long-term progression of learning more about the thing that we do? You're teaching mathematics. The knowledge and skill of teaching mathematics is entirely different to 
knowing mathematics and being able to do mathematics. So why is it we're not saying that, you know, this is a professional standard you have to achieve and here are some professional uh, knowledge that you have to achieve? And, you know, the, the, if you go back to the Smith report, which recommended the setup of the NCETM, there have been attempts to do this sort of thing. There's been attempts to be, you know, CTM was a, you know, an attempt to be an honest broker of, of professional development and to stimulate professional development in the profession uh, and get people involved in that. But that hasn't really turned out that way. The Maths Hub program, you know, 35 Maths Hubs that we have at the moment are of varying quality and not really, there's no real system-wide strategic leadership of that though i know people will disagree but you know argue with me on twitter if they want to um but i don't see i don't see across this country the thousands and thousands of people who teach mathematics feeling that they're expected to be part of a professional learning network they're expected to be part of something where they're growing their knowledge and um, learning about math teaching um, most cpd that happens in england is generic uh, you know it's about behavior problems and policies and diktats, um, yet we know that what makes a difference is subject-specific CPD, and you hardly ever see it. Uh, so, yeah, it's not it's not in a good place, uh, but, you know, what I, would, what I would say just to counter that rather negative response is that all of the knowledge is inside our system. Uh, you know, I, I travel around the world and I rarely meet rarely come across a system that is so knowledgeable about maths education. That's why so many countries look to England to purchase education solutions. You know, if you look around the world, if you look at where big contracts are going for school support and school improvement, a very large number of those countries are coming to England and saying, how do we do this? That's why uh, international, uh, international schools are so successful around the world. That's why there are thousands of those schools teaching the English curricula and so on, because it's a very highly regarded system, but we aren't tapping into it. And, um, you know, the, 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 there's quite a long way to go before we're able to do that with the fragmentation that's happening at the moment. I mean, you mentioned that you, you're convinced that all the maths knowledge uh, that, that we need uh, for maths education um, lies within um, the, the subject associations. What what advice would you give them, the, the subject, whether it be ATM or, or the MA or whoever, what, what, what should they be doing then to help get this knowledge out there in in a coherent way because i must admit like I, i'm a member of the ma and this isn't to to diss them in any way but like i probably get more useful stuff from maths blogs from from experienced teachers i I've, on a day-to-day -day basis I, I think i learn more from them than i do from my professional subscription and if i speak to to our, our kind of trainee teachers or or PGC students or NQTs that, that I mentor, very few of them will have any um, intention of becoming a member of, of these professional associations. So what, what do they need to do, Mark, to, to get all this knowledge out there in a coherent and kind of actionable way? Mm. Um, okay, so I'll just say uh, what I think. Uh, you know, there are people in the subject associations who will vehemently disagree with this. <laughs> and, you know, I'm sure I'll, I'll um, get told off by a few people. Um, but what the what the issue is there with the subject associations is that they themselves are fragmented. Look how many maths subject associations there are, and that there are a lot of um, you know a, a lot of benefits to be had in coming together 
and if they could come together uh, more than they do. There's a lot of effort to do that. So many good people in the subject associations trying to help maths teachers in this country. But I think the coming together would be important. And I think and the bit that will be really unpopular in the subject associations, I'm afraid to say, is I think that there needs to be a professionalising of the subject associations. Now, that's a really difficult thing to do because the subject associations are quite rightly uh, charities um, and should be charities and should stay independent charities. Um, but what that means is that often um, you can't move at the kind of speed of a professional body um, or a professional uh, private company, if you like. Um, and I think they do need to move at that speed to keep up. Uh, so my answer to that, and here's me unpopular with other people now, my answer to that is I would take the £11 million that was given to, to the math subs, take it off them and give it to the subject associations. That's what I'd do. That um, To take £11 million, to give it to 35 schools when already we have networks of um of professionals set up with all of this knowledge and people that have been working through, you know, not not working on a project for one government, but there are people in the ATM and in the MA and the other ones as well who have been working to improve maths education in this country for 30, 40, 50 years. And I would rather trust them with my 11 million pounds of taxpayers' money. And I would rather trust them to do something meaningful, purposeful and impactful with that money. So that's what I would do. And what would you want them to do with that money, Mark? So I would use that money to um, professionalise the central services of those bodies so that they could put together a proper strategic plan on reach. And I would give them a remit. You know, you can't just give out public money with, with, with no strings. I would give them a remit of they have to reach every single teacher in the country, that they have to focus on improving the subject-specific pedagogy and knowledge of teachers in the country, that they have to make sure that every teacher in the country has access to and also wants to be part of a professional learning network, a meaningful one, one that, one that is uh, continual throughout the year, throughout the years, where teachers are able to keep coming back together to learn from knowledgeable experts, others, you know, people, people who are working in different situations, maybe even from different countries, um, so that people have access to that knowledge and that they have uh, structures and frameworks for their own professional learning. I mentioned John Mason's discipline for noticing earlier. You know, that personally, that is, that, that is one thing I would expect of every maths teacher, that every maths teacher is involved in noticing about their practice, identifying how to change, how to act, but that they have the professional expert support and advice about, well, how do I act? What does that action entail? How do I go about it? What might happen? How do I carry out this process? And I think that, um, professionalizing the central services, bringing the subject associations together as one, giving them the machinery that they need to reach schools, to have a proper um, reach into the, the market, giving them a remit to do that um, is where I'd go. Now, and, and, you know, there will be people listening to this who are thinking, well, you know, come on, Mark, that's a bit rich because surely that's what NCETM was supposed to do. Well, yeah, fine, but, you know, that's not where we're at. And where we're at is here today. And, you know, I think that, if there's anyone that could step up to uh, make a difference in this country, it would be the subject associations. But that isn't going to happen because there isn't the there isn't the, the the desire to do that in the associations, and there isn't the financial backing to do that from the government. 
<laughs> well, fantastic. Let 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 the Twitter war uh, begin over that. Well, That's okay. well, I'll, I'll just switch it off for a few weeks. <laughs> well, let me move on to LaSalle's offering there, because two of the two of the CPD courses you you offer are for heads of department and NQTs, and I just want to pick up on on both of those in particular, because I know we have a lot of heads of department and a lot of um, NQTs and trainee teachers listening to this. So, firstly, on on your heads of department course, Mark, I wonder if you can give us a bit of a summary. What advice do you do you give to heads of department <laughs> okay um crikey that's a very hard question um the heads of department um head of maths support program that we run which lasts throughout the, the whole year uh is designed to very deliberately uh engage heads of maths in talking about things that are not administrative um, and are not what you often see on middle leader courses. So we spend the year talking about how do you spot learning? How do you create uh, questions and prompts that reveal what's going on in a child's mind? Um, how do you uh, take a, a group and often, often a very diverse group of staff in your, in your school recognize the variations between them you know variation in school is, is is far greater than variation across schools um how do you take that variation and work with that how do you appreciate uh different people's pedagogies and understand that they can all be impactful and all be effective um and work with that variety you know so there are there are bits on the on, on the year for example where we talk about uh, lesson planning performers and rip the bloody things up. Um, you know, so we designed the, we designed it to be, um, much more about, um, the, it's much more the sort of thing you would get if you were going on a master's course about maths education. And it's really deliberately like that. And, and actually, yeah, I'll confess that, uh, in the first session last September, we had some people drop out. Because they, and they said to us at the end of it, you know, I, I came here to learn about policies and structures and management procedures. And you've just talked about maths education and pedagogy and teaching and learning. And, you know, I thought that was a very telling moment that there are lots of middle leaders, um, who see their job not as one of being about, you know, singing the praises of effective teaching and learning, but see their job as about creating spreadsheets um you know the sort of thing you could, a trained monkey could do uh so that's our head of maths one it's about taking you to the next level of thinking the the whole thing of um you know you go through phases as we all have um of being a maths teacher you're coming to being a maths teacher and you, you know some mathematics and that's fine but it's not very helpful so then you go through a phase of i know some mathematics and i have to learn how to get those kids to know some mathematics so I go through that phase and that's good and that's really helpful. And then there's a phase after that where I know ways in which I can get children to know some mathematics. How do I get another, another adult to know how to get children to learn yes. mathematics? And you start becoming a teacher educator. You know, you get to that point. Um, and I think heads of math should be working at that level. They should be, they should be recognizing that their human resource, the teachers that work with them, they have now have a higher level skill to achieve, attain, sorry, um, so that they can make, get the most from those people. So that's the head of maths one. And the NQT one um, 
is, yeah, it's, 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 it's actually running tomorrow. I've got that tomorrow. Um, the Anki T1 is, is similar in its aspiration, but obviously at the earlier stage of um, the development. So we have a bunch of NQTs on the whole. They know some mathematics and we're taking them through the process of, okay, the stuff in your head and the stuff that we know is mathematics. How are we going to, how are we going to act? How are we going to behave? What dispositions do we need? What prompts? How do we go about um, creating lessons that get children to know those things as well? So it, it's, uh, it's, quite a, it's quite a sort of academic course, I think. And is am I right in saying that the NQT course is everything that you feel teacher training should be, but isn't? Would that be fair to say? Yeah, we we you know we, we go and we look at this is the whole of school level mathematics. These are the things that are going to be um, encountered by students, and we go through them. And you, you know you can't get through all of them, and, and you're not meant to. That's why it takes us five, ten years to become um, expert at teaching. Um, but we go through a lot of them in this first year and we say, look, OK, let's take a concept and we'll nail it. Let's take that concept, explore ways of doing it. What questions can we ask? Uh, what activities can we do? What will it look like? What will happen in the child's mind? What does that lead to? Where did it come from? How does it evolve? Why is it infinite? How do you make it infinite? And we do that with topics. Um, and what I've really loved about the NQT one is because the NQTs are maybe maybe more forthcoming with these things uh, than, than uh, heads of maths are. Um, is that lots of the NQTs on, on the course this year then send us uh, pictures of their classes working and what's going on in the lessons and, and even the ones where, you know, it's gone completely wrong. Uh, you know, so we, we did a thing where we introduced the NQTs very early on to points of departure, you know, the, the ATM books, yes. 70s. Um, we introduced them to them and it was like a revelation for them. Wow, what is this stuff? And they go go away and try some points of departure stuff in the classroom. And then they come back and they talk about it and, and we sort of unpick that. It's a really nice thing to see. It's like sort of classroom observation from afar. Uh, and, and they'll write to you and say, oh, this went wrong. And you give them some advice. And, yeah, and we give them the backup of, of the system, obviously. So they've got you know, support for every single uh, lesson they, they, they're going to encounter. So they, they've always got pedagogical advice and they've always got um, prompts and questions and activities that they can do, but then we develop them together as well. And seeing people mature in, yeah, because developing resources is really hard. Writing a question, which sounds easy, it sounds easy to say, here's a, here's a mathematical thing, write a question for it. Yes. But actually designing a question is, is really tough. Um, so we go through every single session we do, we do somewhere we're doing learning design and seeing them through the year becoming more expert at learning designers is just lovely. So yeah, that's what we that's what we try to do on that, and that's really what I think, or what I'd want um, initial teacher education to be more about, more more about the subject itself and, and addressing, um, you know, the concepts that they're, that they're going to be responsible for getting children to grip in their career. Superb. Well, if we can turn now, Mark, to some questions from Twitter, if that's all right. And we're going to, we're going to open up with one from me, actually. And it, we, you've kind of touched upon this a, a little bit throughout this. But I just wondered, what books do you think every teacher should read? 
So you asked yourself a question on Twitter? Yeah, I know. I, I didn't really mean to. Like, that's how desperate I am for, for interaction. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm going for it. Because well, yeah. I know you're... you're um, and the reason I ask this is um, I've often heard you reference books and stuff. Yeah. And, and some of them, I must confess, I, I've not heard of or, or not read myself. But certainly, I, I may be generalising here, but a lot of the younger teachers I speak to aren't even aware that these, these books exist and some of these great names. So I wonder if you just have like a, a mini reading list. We've got the summer holidays coming up at the time of recording what what should every teacher be reading over the summer um yeah okay so i would suggest that everyone uh everyone reads um discipline of noticing i, I think it's, uh, it's an incredibly important piece of work uh collaborative learning in mathematics which is um malcolm swan's ooh, um 2006 book maybe um sorry i haven't prepared for this bit either uh uh, Haylock's book on um, uh, early mathematics, I think, is is a really important book, all about manipulatives. Um, and then that would take me back to uh, Catherine Stern, uh, 1949, um, Children Discover Arithmetic, which uh, I've got sitting in front of me right now, actually, um, which is a phenomenally important book. Uh, and, and again, it's about manipulatives and <laughs> what, what, you know, people who... People have discovered bar modeling now like it didn't exist, <laughs> yes. which is so lovely. Um, but, yeah, there, there are books there talking about that. And, you know, in terms of reading lists as well, if people if people have time and, you know, it, it, teaching is a very busy job. But I think we do need to we do need to be very mindful of the past. I was speaking um, at the weekend at an event and one of the quotes I used was from um, Gusky uh, in 2005 where he's lamenting how we keep ignoring the past and reinventing things and we shouldn't do this. And it's, it's absolutely spot on. So you know, I think we do have an obligation to be looking backwards as well as looking forwards. If people haven't read it, um, everyone should read the Cockroft Report. I, it's, it's just an incredibly important piece of work, whether whether you agree with it or not. I think it's an important thing to read and understand where a lot of what comes in and out of fashion has come from um and i would i would also suggest uh short papers by skemp uh, which are quite interesting and you know the, the whole discussion about relational understanding i think is a very interesting thing to do and and yeah particularly people who are at the sort of early stages of their career when reading things like skemp i would encourage them to ask quite deep questions of it that you know, there are, there are statements made which resonate with you as a human being. They just feel good. But then you think, hang on a minute, nothing's evidenced here. And what's this referring to? And, you know, I, I'd encourage people to question everything that they read and everything that they hear at conferences and the like. I think that's a really important thing to do. Um, and probably my final one is not a mathematics one, um, but I would suggest that people read... Uh, Principles of Action Research by Gene McNiff, which I think is a, a really important piece of work. Gene and I did some work on epistemological transformation. And, you know, I think, it, I think particularly as you go through the phases of a teacher, I think considering what knowledge is, is really important. Um, so, you know, getting onto sort of epistemological ideas is an important place to be, but not in your first year. You know, 
<laughs> and one notable absentee from that list is is Joe Bowler's elephant in the classroom. Would, would that be on? Would that make you kind of just just miss out on being on your list, or are you not a fan of that one, Mark? No, it wouldn't be on my list. Do you care to elaborate why? Um, I don't like it, so I wouldn't recommend it. Isn't that isn't that the sort of that's how you do book recommendations? <laughs> you recommend the ones you like. I mean, the reason I ask is... <laughs> I know uh, why you're asking. <laughs> well, it's just, it is particularly well-read of, it's probably the most well-known um, maths education book for a certain crop of, of, of teachers, I would say. And it's, it's so, I mean, I, I've, I've read it, I've, I've spoken to Joe, and it, it's certainly thought-provoking, but I just, I, if, if, if you care to elaborate a little more, what, 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 what don't you like about it, Mark? Um, okay, you're going to push me. Uh, so... The ones that I was recommending there, um, so the, the way in which I'd answer it is I would compare the ones I recommended to the ones that, uh, the one that you're talking about. And I would suggest that the ones that I recommended have, um, a strong evidence base with a sensible methodology, uh, behind them. And I find, uh, Joe's methodology questionable and her evidence base highly questionable. Got it. That's it. That's all you're getting. Stop digging. That's fine. <laughs> um, we'll move on now to, to more questions from Twitter that aren't actually from, from myself. So we, we've got one here from, from Mr. Blatchford, and he, he says, and I'll direct quote here, Mark recently tweeted that he never marked a book in his life. Can he elaborate on this in detail how best to mark in inverted commas books? Okay, did I? Um, <laughs> uh, I'll take his word from it. Um, yeah, I, I don't. I, I haven't marked books. Um, chapter eighteen of, of my two thousand and four book, uh, which is, is is split up into bits of uh, the, the chapter names are things about teaching and learning and the, you know the process and all that kind of thing. And chapter eighteen is called marking books, and the entire chapter just says I wouldn't bother, um, <laughs> and I really wouldn't. Um, I think that I think that feedback is incredibly important. And I think that um, uh, probably the most important thing, I mentioned formative assessment earlier on, feedback and then acting, feedback and then acting, learning things, spotting things, acting, but doing it there and then in the moment, in the context of what's going on. I see almost no benefit at all to um, taking kids' books home every couple of weeks, chucking them into your car, spending your weekend putting ticks inside them for something that happened two weeks ago. Um, I, I often you, you know, use this sort of the little story. You know, anyone that's had young kids, you, you know that um, you know, if you have a three-year-old and they knock over a vase and it smashes, which happens you know, all the time. There's very little point three weeks later saying, well, let's sit down and have a little conference about the vase smashing <laughs> three weeks ago. You know, feedback should be there and then straight away. Um, and, you know, when we when we look at what is the most impactful thing that you can possibly do that regularly comes up? Um, marking does achieve something. It makes you knackered. And, you know, I've, I've seen lots of teachers who are really, really tired. And teaching is an exhausting thing to do. And you need energy. And your energy should be there in the moment with the class doing that thing there and then. Um, and I, I, I don't think that marking books achieves that. So on to Dave's second part of the question, which is, you know, so, so, so yes, I, I didn't mark books. However, um, you know, I guess he's put 
you know, marking in there as, as meaning assessment. How did I assess children? Well, I assessed children because I wasn't knackered. So in every single lesson, I spoke to every single child multiple times, monitored what they were doing, walking around the room all the time, listening to them, watching them, listening for key moments and already knowing what the misconception is. So you can think I'm waiting to spot that and then I'm going to act as a teacher. I'm going to do something when that happens, um, you know, and constantly giving them feedback all, all the time. I honestly have never had a child say to me, um, I wish you marked our books, sir. Never. And I've never had a child say to me, uh, you don't know anything about me um, because, you know, I just speak to them constantly. I have, of course, had parents ring up and say, oh, you don't mark my books. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I know. But let's see what results they get at the end of the year. And, you know, the, that situation has always turned out OK for me. I'm not saying that's what other people should do at all. If you like marking on a Friday night, um, fine, do it. If you think it's got a benefit, if you can do it in a way that is immediate, you know, if you're taking books in from one day, handing them back the next, acting at the start of that lesson, fantastic. But I never had that ability. I never had that energy to do that. Um, so I would put all of my energy into making it happen in, in live time in front of them. Um, you can do that in lots and lots of different ways by giving them smart questions, by seeing what comes out of it, by acting them. Um, you know, and my, my days, there was, you know, there was still GCSE coursework and stuff like that. And I think I marked that. Or is, was that, <laughs> that might have been the days when you just weighed it and said that was a B. I can't remember. <laughs> but yeah, what? That, um, <laughs> that clear. That was a joke. Cause I'm, <laughs> um, I can see the headlines yeah. now. <laughs> but what about, um, what about pressure from SLT? Cause often that, that's where it comes from, right? Like we, we, we have book scrutiny about every three weeks. It's a different year group where we have to hand in all our books and they get looked at by SLT and our head of department and we get, you know, feedback and uh, given on our feedback and our marking. I mean, that that's often where the pressure comes from. And if you've got a teacher listening here who's, I don't know, maybe an NQT or maybe just, you know, just someone who's been teaching five or six years or even a head of department, they, they're not in that position to, to say that they're, they're not going to mark books. Would, would you have... Any advice to them about how they could kind of put their point across? Um, I don't think I've got any advice because the, the, the scenario where you are, the particular thing is so important. The only thing I can say is, you know, and I'm saying this from an exceptionally lucky position that I managed through uh, luck, sometimes by judgment, I managed to pick really bright people to work for and with. Um, so, you know, I never... I never worked for an idiot, and and frankly, only an idiot would think that with grown-ups you have to check if they're marking books. Um, you know, I work. I well, that's not true. Actually, I worked for one idiot for a very short period of time, and then said, you know, well, just sack me because I'm not. You're you're an imbecile, and I'm not going to do what you tell me to do. Um, you know, it's and I get, I completely get that some teachers are not in that position and, you know, that you have the pressures of life, you have mortgages, you have families, and all that is sort of hanging there um, and can result in people feeling they have to behave in certain ways for certain people. Uh, the only thing I would say, I guess, is life is too short to work for idiots and you're too valuable. Um, you know, if you think marking makes a difference, and it is making a difference because it's what you're doing and it works well for you, Fine, go for it. 
if you're marking because somebody collects your books in every three weeks, I would question, are you working for the right person? So I know that's not very helpful, but I don't have any practical advice about how to get out of that situation. Oh, that's that's great. It's honest. That's that's the most important thing, Mark. That's that's fantastic. Well, another question from from Twitter, and I, I don't know what your take on this is going to be. I'm genuinely fascinated uh, to hear what you've got to say about this. So this is from uh, Caroline Peters, um, who's um, Miss STEM 2015 on Twitter, and she says fixed mindset is in maths is a big blocker to making progress. How do we start a revolution needed to change this? So, well, what's your view? It is fixed mindset uh, amongst students and perhaps even teachers. Is that a, a major concern? yours yeah that's a great question i thought so Uh, yeah yeah it's it's such a big issue that um this idea that this idea that there are ability streams with children but some children are able and some children are not well do you know what some children are some children are able of winning the fields medal in mathematics and some children are not but they're not doing that they're doing school level mathematics which is frankly embarrassing in its aspiration Every single child is able to get an A star in mathematics. Every single one of them. Now, I know there is a tiny, tiny fraction of the percentage of children where that's really, really, really difficult to achieve in the 11 years they've got. But it is a tiny fraction of 1%. Everyone else is able to do that. Um, and we don't do that for a multitude of reasons, mainly because we have a sort of conveyor belt curriculum approach. But also, which is, is part of Caroline's question, I guess, also because through being browbeaten and through, you know, pressures and high stakes and accountability, I think that we sometimes as a, as a math teaching profession have lost our spunk and we sometimes give in to thinking, oh, not that kid. You know, you, you hear this, you, you hear teachers saying, oh, not that kid. That kid will never do it. And I pull them up and I say, that's bullshit. Of course they can. And then you have an intellectual argument about it. And and luckily, often, they'll come around to saying, okay, what I meant was not that kid with what I've got available to me, the time, the resource, the structure, the constraints, whatever it is. But, yeah, I think it's really important that all teachers have the mindset themselves that – Every child can achieve everything in school-level mathematics. It's not hard. You know, why is calculus not at, that, at age 14? It really should be. Why have we not raised the bar? Why have we not made it even more difficult than we've made it? We should. And we don't because we're not getting there with enough children. And, you know, lots of reasons to do that. There's lots of reasons to do with the way the curriculum structured, the diet that they have, the constant change of, of direction and uh, accountability measures, all of that kind of stuff going on. But I think as a group of human beings who teach mathematics, I think it's important that we all say to each other, actually, I believe every kid can. It doesn't mean every kid will, but I believe every kid can get there. Um, I think they, I think it would be a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy if we did that. I mean, if everyone had that attitude, standards of attainment would, would rise merely as a result of that, without us changing anything. Um, so the thing we have to address is, why do teachers, why have teachers come to that opinion that there are those kids who exist? Now, not those kids, they will never get there. Um, why have they got that? And I know there'll be secondary school teachers listening to this and they'll be saying, well, hang on a minute, Mark, I've got 
kids who are 16 and they can't number bond to 10. Well, I'm not saying to that teacher that kid's going to get an A star this August. What I'm saying is if they had had the right journey and right experience from age three, they wouldn't have ended up there and they could have ended up getting an A star. So, yeah, I think think it's important that we do get to that point. How are we going to start a revolution to get to that point is really tough because um, I said earlier we've got the best subject and we've got the most fortunate subject, but let's face it, we've also got the subject that many, many people, including parents and including teachers, including head teachers of other subjects, say, oh, yeah, it's really hard, can't do that. I was never any good at that. And we've got all that going against us. But, you know, we're just going to have to say, don't care if we've got that going against us and fight against it. Um, wouldn't it be good if we had that aspiration that everyone, every single child passed, even if we're not achieving that year on year? Because having that aspiration would help us move on, I think. But I don't know the answer to Caroline's question, how we'd start a revolution. It's kind of what we're trying to do with LaSalle. You know, we had over 2,000 schools come to our events last year, and I espouse this all the time. And you see in people's faces them thinking, yeah, yeah, when, when, when was it that happened to me? When did I start thinking there are children that can't do this? And it's something that seems to creep into teachers as they go through their career for whatever moments have happened to them in their career. And when you ask them about it, what was it that turned you uh, to this way of thinking? It's often a story often comes back about someone else, some other action that happened to them. Maybe an accountability measure, maybe a head of maths that they had, maybe a head teacher that they had. Something crops up like that. But in their core, in their, their core beliefs, I think a lot of maths teachers think, no, no, we could do this. We could get everyone there. So it's a really good aspiration to have. Um, let's keep trying to change it. Fantastic, and I, I can see potential for a, a McCourt Bowler combination there, because you two, you two are both very much in favour of uh, dispelling this this fixed mindset. So yeah, there may be uh, maybe you should revisit a book there, Mark. You could be you could you might have missed something within there. Yeah, I've got a photographic memory. I think I remember it okay. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I agree. Joe does share the exact same belief there, in that you know everyone can achieve and whatever. It's just I believe in you know, teaching maths properly. <laughs> well, we'll move swiftly off of that. Well, this comes to essentially my, my kind of final question before we hand over to you for your big three. But it's I'll warn you now, it's, it's a big one. And this is kind of an amalgamation of several questions that are coming from Twitter and ones that I've wanted to ask you over the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. So uh, let, let's go for it. So I'm going to promote you instantly to, to Secretary of State for Education. You're going to promote me. <laughs> <laughs> Well, whichever way you want to take it, you've got a new job starting tomorrow. So, uh, what are you gonna what are you gonna do in your first 100 days? Is is the first part of this question? What you what are your immediate actions? Ah, right, okay. The 100 day question that every new government gets. Yes. So I'm Secretary of State for Education. Yes. Um, I would do in my first 100 days, I would go on holiday, <laughs> and I would do nothing. Um, what this profession needs is a period of stability. It needs to be left the hell alone. There are thousands and thousands of maths teachers, and frankly, they know what they're doing. And there are people in the system who know what they're doing. And if a, if, if a new Secretary of State comes along, um, I would hope that they would be bright enough to say, what I should do is let them get on with it. 
and stop tinkering and stop messing about with this system. And, you know, everyone has to deliver on a mandate. So, you know, if I was Secretary of State and I'm in the, uh, you wouldn't be surprised to hear that I'd be Secretary of State in the Blue Party. Uh, <laughs> so if I was in that party and I was delivering on the mandate, well, I remember what that mandate was. And that mandate was all around standards. And that mandate was not about interfering with pedagogies and interfering with classroom practices. That mandate was a conservative mandate about devolving power to schools and head teachers and trusting sensible people to get on with their job. So I'd deliver on that. And that would just involve me, I don't know, bugger off to Portugal for 100 days and say, have fun, guys, get on with it. Um, you know, I wish, I really do sincerely wish that someday we get a government that realises that their job in education is to implement the will of the voters. And what parents vote on is the outcome. They want their children to be bright at the end of it. They want their children to be able to have jobs and have meaningful, purposeful lives. They want the economy to be strong. They want their children to be happy. They want the, they, they vote on the outcome. And I've got no problem with the government saying, okay, 22,000 schools, we expect you to get these children from here to here. And woe betide if you don't do it. But how you do that, we're going to leave to you because you know what you're doing. You know, and I don't see health secretaries walking into surgeries and grabbing scalpels off of doctors <laughs> and saying, here, give me a shot at that. And I just find it despicably insulting when someone who knows nothing about what we do tries to tell us what to do. I think that my hundred days over, I would then come back and this is a repeat now. So I'm just going back to what I was saying earlier. I would then come back and I would bring together the best people from the subject associations and from the maths community and say, okay, you've been doing this for decades. You've seen all the pros and cons. You've seen secretaries of state come and go and come and go and come and go. Fad and fashion, come and go, come and go. What should we be doing, guys? And I would consult with people who know what they're talking about. And I really worry about some of the consultation that happens at Secretary of State level. I worry about the people they call upon um, as their experts. And I would like to see a Secretary of State who was brave enough to say, you know what, it's, o it's okay to consult with someone that isn't half a mile from Westminster uh, and go out and ask people who actually know what they're talking about. So there you go, mate. That's what I do. Nothing at all. I like it. I like it. Well, I'm, I'm going to push this a bit further now. Now, I don't know exactly how to get this scenario, but just, just bear with me a second here. So you're, you're possibly you're still Secretary of State of Education, or maybe you've, you've got some new higher power now. But quite crucially, what's happened is you, you don't have anyone to consult with. And essentially, the slate's been wiped clean in each of these following areas. So I'm going to give you an area. And I want you to say, if the slate had been wiped clean and you've got to build it up from scratch, what are some of the key principles that, that would be involved? So you'll see what I mean as we go through these. So the first one's the, the national curriculum. So imagine the slate's been wiped clean. We've no national curriculum um, and you are put in charge. You can't consult anyone. You've just got to get it built. What are some of the kind of key features you, you'd have in there? OK, um... Well, it'd be, it would be no surprise to some people that I would I would focus very heavily on making sure that every single child has what I refer to as the non-negotiables in place. 
Um, so I would focus very heavily on making sure that mathematics was arranged hierarchically and that children don't progress onto the next step until the, the, the underlying one is really secure. So the non-negotiables, you know, the, 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 I often talk about, you've got numerosity, place value, base 10 system, proportional reasoning and arithmetic. I'd make sure that everyone was very, very well skilled in that grammar of the underpinning grammar of mathematics so that they can progress on to having uh, really good mathematical conversations and getting into interesting mathematics um, when the time is right. So, yeah, in terms of national curriculum, I, I, would, I would sort of make that a, a really strongly espoused uh, belief that we should do that. And I'd want to take the teaching profession with me uh, in, in making that happen. And I rarely meet maths teachers who would disagree with that. Um, so I think, you know, that, that, that that's not knowledge that's coming from me at all. That's just something we as a community know is really important and, and needed to underpin. Then what I do is I would, <laughs> I would drastically raise the bar at the end of schooling. Um, I'd want to see um, calculus come down much earlier into the curriculum. Um, I'd want to see uh, quite a quite a bit of the curriculum um, change to become more realistic uh, in the way in which actual mathematicians work. So children conjecturing more often um, once they have those underpinning skills and involved in more modelling. That's a personal bias, though. So it's unfair that I'm not allowed to consult. Um, though I do feel that you know I've had decades of consulting. But, I speak to people all the time and I don't meet many math teachers who who think that you know, having those underpinning skills is not the right way to go and not moving on until they are there. Um, and, and now I would continue to espouse the belief that every single child can leave school mathematically literate. I see no reason why anyone should um, should be leaving school in the kind of state that some children are when they're, when they're age 16. That's what I do with curriculum. Got it. Fantastic. Um, well, number two then, teacher training. <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay. Um, I think I think just simply, I would I would suggest that we have a really high level of expectation of subject knowledge and subject-specific pedagogy for anyone that's going to be allowed into the classroom. Um, you know, so that's coming back to what I was saying earlier about making sure that people have been educated themselves into the ways in which you can get children to grip each of the concepts that we want them to grip in their time at school. You can't achieve that in one year. So I would suggest that teacher education is longer than one year. That doesn't stop you being in a job and training, you know, why do we not have junior teachers? We have junior doctors. Junior doctors are junior doctors for a reason. It's because they are still, the, the, there is a recognition that they are still acquiring the skills and knowledge of their craft. And I, I think it would be quite a positive thing for us to recognize that in the first five years, the first, definitely the first five years, perhaps longer than that, you are still acquiring the skills and knowledge of your craft and teaching. Um, I don't know why that's an embarrassing thing for us to admit. Um, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't as good a teacher in my 
first, second, third, and fourth year, as I was five years after that, or after that, you know, so I would, I would want it to be seen much more as a continuum and that there would be a continued expectation to keep improving. Fantastic. Well, that's teacher training sorted. Uh, number three on my list, Mark. What about Ofsted? Um, well, I think, uh, yeah, I think it's pretty well known that I would abolish the regulator. Um, I think, uh, and I can almost hear people booing as I say, <laughs> I think that Michael Wilshaw um, has actually done a really important job in recent years, and I think there's been huge positive moves, uh, particularly at the senior leadership of Ofsted, uh, in trying to uh, ensure that they behave in a much more um, intelligent fashion and one that's more suitable to what we do. My problem with the regulator, and you know, we're about to have a new HMCI in, in January, um, my problem with the regulator is that the nature of a regulator means that you're simply measuring and you're simply observing and, and, and making judgment. Before 92, 92, 93, um, HMIs existed. You know, there were still inspectors. There was just no organization of Ofsted. The difference is that inspectors working in local areas also had a remit to improve. So you had people who were honest uh, critics and they came and they said this is what's going on but then part of their skill base and their knowledge was to help change that situation help improve that situation and I would like to see that the current system of regulator um, be abolished though you can keep a lot of its good practice and there is a lot um, the current system be abolished and that the profession itself becomes much more of its own regulator but those involved with it also have a remit for improvement because I think that changes the entire psychology of the people who are making judgments and I also think it raises the skill level of those people if you need to know how to improve the thing that you have just seen you have to have a much more advanced skill level so that's what I do with the with the regulator Got it. Fantastic. Only only a few more now. What about assessment at primary school? Uh, in in what respect? In the end end of primary school, would you like would you get rid of SATs? Would you change them? So year six. Yeah. No, I, I don't. I don't really mind. I I think one of the problems that we have is um, you know at the end of year six you get a big exam and there's so much so much emphasis put on that. Why don't we have a big exam every year? Um, is, is it really that big a deal? Um, you know, do my kids scream and cry because they have a test? Well, probably, but I just tell them to shut up and you know, get a grip. Life is, is not simple. Um, so I don't mind that there's an exam there. Uh, I would I think it would be a heck of a lot better if there was an exam every year. So year six wasn't such a big deal. And we were able to to actually do something with that data that was purposeful and meaningful. The problem with only having an exam in year six and then not another one until you're age 16 is that the data set from both of those is pretty much useless because we yes. don't act. We don't do anything about it. Um, but, you know, at heart... Um, I, I think that our job is about 
spotting things and acting. So, you know, although I don't mind an end of year exam, I, I think it can actually be quite a positive thing if, if operated correctly and is regular enough and people don't have big hissy fits about it. Um, but I would say the important thing is that assessment is happening in every single lesson at every single moment. Um, and that teachers are acting upon what they see and hear, which is what I think teachers do anyway. Um, you know, and the whole false construct of a, an exam at the end of, well, it's not even at the end, which makes it even worse. <laughs> Part of the way through year six, it completely disrupts the year. And then everyone's so sort of out of it that May, June and July are all a bit crazy, happy, clappy. Um, yeah, I just think the thing is a very useful thing to do. Um, and teachers should just focus on day-to-day assessment in the moment and, and acting on what they find. Got it. And fi- final two from me, Mark. What about GCSEs? And I'm thinking here in particular of, of the light of, of the recent changes. Is that a positive move? Would you would you go further? What what would you do if you could start GCSEs from scratch? Well, as, I, as I've already said, I find GCSEs embarrassing in their um, aspiration. I think that after 1,600 hours of maths lessons, that that is the thing you can do is a joke. Um, you know, and, 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 and we don't even say that as a thing you can do. We mainly say grade C is, and that, that's, that's just a, a travesty that that's what we're aiming for after 1,600 hours of instruction, 11 years at school, and that's all you can do. Um, so, uh, I know it doesn't, doesn't make me popular, but I would make them, um, I'd make them much more aspirational. And I think it is really important before the end of compulsory education that children are exposed to the calculus because I think that's the moment where, you know, after all those years, after 11 years, you don't get to the beauty of it. You know, it's, it's, it's tragic. Um, so I would, I would have the calculus introduced much earlier so that, at least at the point where you're leaving compulsory education so you can make decisions about your future, you have been exposed to the majesty of what we do as a subject, and then more people might want to continue doing it. Um, but that takes that takes reform from day one of entering school. And I know it's a pipe dream because we can't ever, as a country, seem to say what we're going to do is take a long-term view and start with an aspirational curriculum, but we're going to start it here in day one. You know, the the new um, national curriculum introducing it to a bunch of children who had been on a different journey for six, uh, seven years, and then saying this is what you're expected to jump onto now, um, is just a really unhelpful thing to do. We need to bite the bullet and say we're not talking about those children. We're talking about children who are going to be in schools in um, going to be leaving schools in fifteen years time. Oh, sorry, 11 years time and plan for them. But, you know, we'll never get there. Uh, and that's a really sad thing and something that, that, uh, I, I find particularly upsetting about, uh, the way in which education is run in this country. Okay, well, fi- final one for me then, and it's it's an obvious one. If, if calculus is, is coming down for, from A level, how would you, how would you change A levels? Um, well, d- you know, if you've got if you've got children introduced to calculus in um, let's say year well let's say when they're fourteen starting to do the calculus studying that then we could be doing some neat stuff in A level you know it wasn't that long ago we we were doing first and second order differential equations in in A level why can't we be doing that again 
why can't we be doing some interesting uh, modeling and interesting situations? You know, the, the fact that we have to spend uh, months and months with children, uh, not children then, are they? 17, 16, 17 year olds. We have to spend months with them just introducing them to differentiation. It's just so, it makes A level math so bloody dull. Whereas, you know, it wasn't, it really wasn't that long ago where you could say, no, let's set up some first order, second order differential equations. Let's look at what's happening in this situation. Let's model it against something real. Do something exciting, something interesting. So, you know, there's a whole load of stuff that we could be bringing down into the curriculum. I wouldn't want to make that decision because, you know, me, Greg, I'd ban all of stats and I'm sure that's the <laughs> wrong thing to do. It definitely is. It definitely is. is. Um, but, you know, like as I've said before, there is a community out there. We've got a really strong maths community and I think it is not beyond our wit to, uh, to collectively design a really nice A-level curriculum. Got it. Fantastic. Well, I, I've I've spoken far too much here, Mark. Um, so now it's it's your opportunity here to to direct listeners to to three pages or websites um, that that you feel that you'd, you'd like them to visit. It can be anything you like, and I'll include links to these in in the show notes. So this is your opportunity for your big three. So what what's going to be number one, Mark? Um. Okay. So it's too obvious, but uh, number one should be emails. Um, you know, my baby, I started it uh, 12 years ago, and I still love it like a child. Um, and, you know, I, I, I get a lot of positive comments about it and went over 50 million users last year. And it's nice. It's just a nice feeling to know that people get use out of that. But also, it contains my blog um, where I I uh, expand on some of the things we've spoken about today. Um <laughs> And then the second one, um, I would say, if you go on our website, the LaSalle website, there is a section, LaSalle-education.com forward slash free resources. There is a section on there, free resources, where we have included um, our entire curriculum on there, which you can just grab and download for free. And I'd really like to know what people think of it, the journey through it, is it the right journey? And I like having conversations about curriculum design. Um, so that would be my second one. The third one, I'm going to cheat uh, because I'm going to choose two. But there we go. Um, <laughs> so the third one is either the uh, website of the ATM or the MA, but really visit both of them. You know, get get it so you can log in and read the journals. The MA have been tweeting out um, old old articles recently and on their Twitter account. If you're not following the MA, follow that just to read those. It's just stunningly good stuff and the atm you know back issues of uh, of their magazines which is just jam-packed uh full of knowledge that every maths teacher should be accessing so you know i'd suggest getting onto the subject association websites for everyone fantastic i'm going to chuck a bonus one in there mark and i just just want you just to talk very briefly about maths conf here because i've been lucky enough to be to have been at the very very first one and, and several ones since and at the time of recording we're we're about to set off to leeds at uh, leeds at the weekend and um, for maths conf 7 now so again if you can just just talk briefly about why you felt there was a, a need to set up something like that and just why you feel it's important um so I don't know if these guys know this, uh, but at the ATM Easter conference, um, 
five or six years ago, I can't remember. Um, I was stood um, chatting with Eddie Wilde uh, from OCR and Steve Humble, um, who at the time was at NCETM, and Andrew Jeffrey. And we were just nattering away, talking rubbish. And we looked around the room and there just weren't many maths teachers in the room. And one of the guys said, I can't remember who it is. I think, I think we all claim it was us, uh, but someone said, you know, there's, there's got to be a way of bringing together more classroom teachers than this. There's got to be a way where you can have like a grassroots movement of bringing teachers together. And that's what, that's what sort of sparked it off, that idea of doing that. And then the other thing was we used to hold NCETM national conferences, um, at places like the Royal Society and you know, stuff like that in London. And I once said at a NCTM directorate meeting, I once said, i tell you where we should hold it. We should hold it in the centre of the country and the most uh, central place I could think of and the most average town in the whole of England, if you look at demographics, is Kettering in North Ants. I said we should hold it in Kettering um, because it's the centre of the country and everyone will come. And Celia Hoyles laughed at me and said I was crazy. Nobody will come. So MathsConf won was held on a Saturday in Kettering and hundreds of people came. Um, and I think there's a real thirst out there from classroom teachers to engage with other teachers, to engage with research, engage with what's happening in other people's classrooms, learn from it, embed it in their own practice, mess around with it, question, and just form a, a network of people that they can help each other out. Um, so that's what MathsConf was about, building that community. And as I said earlier, it lasts just the three last year. That, there was 2,000 schools, which just over 2,000 schools came to the three maths comps last year. Uh, and it, it, fast, it fast became, in the, in the first um, couple of maths comps, it became the largest gathering of maths teachers that, um, that's around. And I, I just love it. I love all those teachers coming together and helping each other out and the different levels of expertise and knowledge. So what we do at the Sal is... is to build this network of teachers. And it does come back to what I was saying earlier about the subject associations um, not having the, the funding and the mechanisms to do this sort of thing. We decided to fund this. Uh, so, you know, MathsConf is largely funded by LaSalle and some supporters like AQA who have been there since the start. Um, but we've funded it so that teachers aren't losing out. You know, we, we, we make a loss on every single teacher that comes, um, because we think it's an important thing to do. I think it's an important thing for those people to come together. And then lots of those teachers contribute further by going onto our online community and helping each other out between conferences. Um, so yeah, we've got next one coming up in Leeds. Hundreds and hundreds of teachers already signed up to come. Um, I'm hoping people listening to this, if you're not signed up, you will come as well. You are more than welcome. Uh, it's a bit of a sort of uh, festival atmosphere. We have a cake competition. We have a treasure hunt. We have uh, other competitions going on. I've got Mike Askew giving the opening plenary. Mike is just fantastic, really good fun, really bright. Um, so I'm sure that would be a great starter. Uh, we've got some charlatan Craig Barton doing a workshop uh, towards the end of it. You know, so it's set to be another good day. And we do this three times a year, always on a Saturday, so that that whole thing of having to seek permission 
from a head teacher is just gone. It just vanishes. You know, you're, you're a professional. You're an inter- intelligent adult. Make a decision about your own professional development and get involved. Um, so yeah, I'm hoping to keep that going for many, many years to come. We've already announced the dates and locations of, I think, all the way up to something like MathsConf 12 or something in the next two years of it. Um, so, you yeah, uh, get involved if, if you can. So, yeah, that's, that's, that's super. That's super. Well, Mark McCall, thanks so much for speaking over two hours uh, to me now. I, I genuinely appreciate it. And for your honest and always thought-provoking opinions and for all that you do for, for the maths community um, in the UK, it genuinely is appreciated by many, many people. So thanks so much, Mark. Thanks, Greg. And, you know, same back to you. What you do is great, and these podcasts are great. Um, well, apart from this one, obviously. <laughs> pleasure to talk to you. I look forward to seeing you um, at MathsConf. Cheers, Mark. Thanks a lot. So, there you have it. There was my interview with Mark McCourt. I really hope you enjoyed that one. Now, looking at the clock here, I can see we are well over the two-hour mark, which I think is a new record for the Mr. Barton Maths Podcast. So, I'll keep this takeaway uh, relatively short. Um, There's so much that Mark said that's worthy of discussion, (laughs) in particular the idea of of never having marked a book, which I'm sure will spark off lots of debate and and caught on like wildfire when I want to mention that to my maths department uh, the the morning after the interview. But the thing I particularly wanted to pick up on um, is the point that Mark made a couple of times about all the answers to all the questions that we have in maths education have already been answered. Now Mark made the point that the subject associations hold the key to a lot of this um, and I'm certainly going to uh, take it upon myself to to make a lot more of my particular subject association membership because I'm going to be perfectly honest with you here and the magazine arrives I have a little glance through it and that's just about it but there's there's a wealth of of, um, electronic archives now um, on on the website that you can you can trawl through and I think Mark's right the 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 certain amount of responsibility that has to lie with the subject associations to make that content a lot more visible and a lot um, easier to access for, uh, for teachers because as I, as I mentioned uh, when talking to Mark I get a, the vast majority of my ideas and resources from some of the wonderful maths bloggers that there are around there but I shouldn't need to because um, I pay for my subject association membership and some of the brightest minds in, in the history of maths education have been involved in, in writing and producing these ideas and resources so I think it could be a little bit easy, easier for, for me to be me and other teachers to be able to find those on their websites and in their archives. So that would be great if any of the members of the subject associations are listening. But I'm certainly going to uh, make it a, a little pledge to myself to have a, have a look back, have a little trawl through the archives and, and find some of the gems that there are in there. But the second second thing is the books that Mark mentions. Now, I, I'm going to be entirely honest here. Um, I, I absolutely adore reading, but I've not read or even heard of many of the books that, that Mark mentioned. And um, so I'm, I'm going to make a little pledge to myself here. At the time of recording, summer holidays are kind of in sight. Um, exams have just have just about finished, a few, few uh, last remaining ones to go. So over the summer, I'm gonna I'm gonna read two of those books off that list. I'm I'm saying it here, and to prove I'm gonna do it, I'll I'll write a little blog post about it or, or something like that. So if any of those books caught your attention, and I've put links to them uh, on the podcast page, um, it'd be great if if you could give them a read too. And because as Mark said, 
that there are the fundamental ideas and all the things that we're discussing now and debating now have probably already been answered and the answers to the pedagogical side of things and, and questioning and investigation and all that have all been done before there's no new problems around and, and the, the answers are found within those classic texts so i'm going to read two books and it'll be fantastic if if you would like to join me maybe a little summer book club in reading some of those classic books that mark suggested or if you've got some of your own that you want to suggest on the on the podcast page that'd be fantastic anyway flipping out look at the time and we still haven't even done the podcast puzzle so for that let me hand back to mark mccourt and once again this is another visual one so the the image itself will be in the um podcast page on uh, the podcast podcast notes and I'll put a link to it just in case it isn't uh, it isn't displaying but it's a classic from Martin Gardner I think you'll really enjoy it so back to Mark um, okay so I would suggest um, pretty much anything by Martin Gardner um, his puzzles I used to enjoy growing up and I thought that three squares would be really nice. Um, so if you don't know three squares, it's three squares sitting together, forming a rectangle and then some diagonals going across those rectangles. And you have to show using basic geometry that uh, one of the angles is the sum of the other two. And you can't use trigonometry, which is why I love it so much, because you really have to think, um, how can I deploy some simple geometrical statements and proofs here? to make this true. So, you know, I'll, I'll share the diagram of that and I'd be really interested to hear people's thinking around how they went about solving it. So there you have it, another episode of the Mr. Barton Maths Podcast done and dusted. All that remains for me to do is to once again thank my wonderful guest on this episode, Mark McCourt, and also podcastthemes.com for the lovely jazzy music that you've heard throughout the show. Um, if you want to get in contact, then on Twitter, I am at Mr. Barton Maths, and you can just say hello or have a suggestion for a guest, whatever you want. And I shall return with a, another Mr. Barton Maths Podcast in the very near future, and as I keep kind of teasing... I've got some absolutely cracking guests lined up for the next few episodes. So, hope all's well. Thanks so much for listening. As I say, if you get time to do us a little review, I will be eternally grateful. But I will see you next episode. Take care and bye for now. Mm-hmm.